Achtung, Achtung, hier ist Alex Wright and you are listening to Chat Grabble and Cheat Pops with JB and Chris Dredd. Enjoy it or I come over and kick your ass. Welcome everyone and welcome to another very special episode of Chat Grapple and Cheat Pops podcast. I am Chris Dredd. I'm here with my main man JB and today we've got a very special guest. We are here with an author and he has written such books as Pro Wrestling Frequently Asked Questions, WWE Legends, The Ultimate World Wrestling Entertainment Trivial Book and Blood and Fire, his new book that has just come out. Um, and we are here with the brilliant Brian R. Solomon. All right. You used the middle initial. Thank you. Perfect. No uh, worries. Happy to, <laughs> happy to be here. Thanks Thanks for having me on, guys. No worries, man. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, we to be honest, we haven't actually had an author on that isn't a wrestler so we have had wrestlers on and interviewed them that have written books um the likelihood of them actually writing the book themselves is pretty fucking minimal um we've had a few guys on that have said oh we are writing a book or we want to write a book or we're in the process of kind of putting bits and bobs together but you are a fully fledged author um, written from everything from Godzilla all the way through to your more recent book, which is about the original Sheik, uh, Blood, Fire, uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. So, um, yeah, man, do you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what, what you're doing at the minute and the, the new book? Well, you know, to tie into what you were just saying, that is a pattern with wrestling books and it's you know it's just the way it is where what we've seen is the the majority of wrestling biographies that come out are autobiographies where it's the actual subject of the book who's writing his or her own book or you know with a ghostwriter or whatever and those are great but there's a and there are many really good ones but there's a difference between that and an independent biography by a writer or a journalist or somebody that's really trying to tell an unbiased story where it's not really, it's not intended to, you know, get anybody over or line anybody's pockets or anything. It's just a work of, you know, nonfiction journalism or whatever. And there's not a lot of those. There's um, the Buddy Rogers one that came out by Tim Hornbaker recently. And there was, of course, the Andre the Giant one that Pat LaProd and Bertrand de Bear did. And so this book to me is I'm trying to do something in that vein where it's a biography of a major wrestling superstar, the original Sheik that's never been done. And so I, I, you know, I have a background in writing first and foremost, I love wrestling. I've loved wrestling since I was 12 years old. And, you know, I was a wrestling fan before I was a writer, but my main thing is I am a professional writer. I've been a professional writer for 25 years if wrestling didn't exist, forbid, knock on wood, but if it did not, I would still be a professional writer. I'd, I'd just be writing about other things. So I'm, I'm trying to apply that to wrestling. And like, I actually care 
the facts are great and doing research is very important. There are probably people out there who are even better at that than I am. But it's also important that the book is readable, <laughs> that, it, that it's enjoyable, that you can enjoy it as a book. And even like what I try to strive for with my books is even if you didn't like wrestling, let's say, or, or you didn't know who the Sheik was or you don't watch wrestling, you, you may still find this book enjoyable to read because I really tried my best to write it very well. So I think that's different from what a lot of wrestling books are. Um. We will, I will interject just quickly. You are also the host of Shut Up and Wrestle, which is on the Arcadian Vanguard network. I hope I got that right. Um, you yes, know, you did. Yeah. Arcadian <laughs> Vanguard. I... It sounds like I've been playing Magic the Gathering cards all weekend, but it just sounds like something from Magic the Gathering, Arcadian Vanguard. Yeah, I have to ask, you know, Brian Last, that's his network, and he's he's best known for the Jim Cornette Experience and the Cornette Drive-Through Podcasts, which are like the two biggest podcasts in, in wrestling. And um, I have to ask him what Arcadian Vanguard means. I've often wondered myself, <laughs> but that's the name of, of, his, of his network. And, uh, you know, he asked me, excuse me, to, to be on that. I, I, you know, I was starting to get, I was on his show, the 605 Super Podcast, and I was on Cornette's show. And I had been thinking of doing a podcast for the longest time. It was in the back of my head because, you know, I used to work for WWE and, you know, I have a lot of these strange experiences and things. And I know a lot of people, I, you know, I can get good guests. And so after the Cornette thing, I thought, well, this might be a good time to try to do it. Like people know who I am and there's a listenership and I was going to do it independently because I never imagined anybody would care about it enough to say, let me help you. And he reached out to me immediately to ask me to do it as a part of his network. And I was like, oh, my God, like I, I would have pitched it to you directly if I thought you actually would wanted to do that. I never even flattered myself. So it's cool because it's a great platform. There's great exposure. There's a built-in audience there. It's like a satellite of the, of what he and Cornette are doing in a weird way. And so, you know, it got the show off to a really hot start. Um, it's an old school themed wrestling podcast where um, every week I have a different guest. And so what the topic is will depend on who the guest is. So like I had, I had uh, Blue Meanie on there and we talked about, you know, not only ECW, we talked about his being a fan as a kid in the 80s. And I had Stu Sachs on there, who was the publisher of Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine for decades. So we could talk about stuff like that. And it all depends on who the guest is. You know, uh, um, I just had RVD on a couple of weeks ago to coincide with the release of the book because RVD was trained by the Sheik. And so we could talk about Detroit wrestling and the Sheik and things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's been a no brainer for me. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's, uh, it's crazy. So you mentioned um, uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So you used to work for them as well, right? And WWE, were you an editor for WWF at one point? Yes, I was uh, with WWF slash WWE for seven years from 2000 to 2007. I worked in their magazine department. So WWE Magazine, Raw Magazine, SmackDown Magazine, all the special magazines like the Divas and, and you know, Hardy Boys and all that stuff. I worked on all that stuff. And since I left WWE in 07, 
I had been contributing freelance because, you know, all the all the PWI writers are freelance. They don't really have a staff like they used to in the in the Bill after glory days. But I, I contribute. I've contributed articles to them since 2007. But in the past two years, I would say since the pandemic, when I've been able to focus more on my freelance writing, I've been a regular contributor every issue to PWI where I have columns in there and I do features for them. So I'm a regular contributor to, to their magazine, which is which I love because I've been reading that magazine since I was a teenager. See, I wasn't a PWI guy. I was a Power Slam guy. And, you know, that was, ah. uh, yeah, well, Power Slam was, uh, it was one that was done here in the UK. And it was, uh, yeah, I, no. I have countless... Um, I can't see them from here, but they, they're sort of they're stacked up. I have a lot of those magazines from the 2000s, from the WWE as well, the WWF, like um, like those special ones, like the, there was a Hulkamania special. and uh... Ah, so the Hulkamania special was, uh, that came out in 2002 when he, right after he had the match with The Rock at WrestleMania, where all of a sudden they realized that we're wasting our time having him be NWO Hogan, like we need to go back to the, red and yellow and have him be, you know, a huge baby face. And that magazine was to capitalize on that. And that became um, the first magazine that I was given to run. So that one's very special to me because I had been just like a staff writer for two years before they said, you know what, we're going to start letting you edit magazines before we give you the monthly magazine to run, <laughs> which they did. They gave me the Hulkamania special as a trial run to see what I would do. So that magazine was my baby. I conceptualized everything in there. Everything that's in that magazine was, was you know, devised by me. And we did the photo shoots. We went down to his house in Tampa or Clearwater area. If you have that issue, you know, we oh, did like. I'm fucking the, on it. I have it now. So <laughs> I was I was in his office with him shooting those pictures when he's got all the belts on his desk and everything like that was all me saying like yeah get all the belts oh my god you have you actually have the rocky three belt the thunder lips belt yeah put that on the desk like i was involved with doing all that stuff so that one i love that issue i love it man that's, uh, that was... that's wrapped in plastic on on the shelf <laughs> Good. Yeah, as it should be yeah with the black with the black cover right the, yeah that's the one yeah he's in the tie dye I fought really hard because they wanted a white background. And I said, no, you know, uh, he will pop. Those colors will pop against a black background better than white. And they were like, what does this kid know? He's 20, whatever years old. He never ran a magazine before. We're, I'm in Shane McMahon's office with the publisher, who's my boss. And I'm going, please, please, please give me a black cover. So now every time I look at it, I go like, yes, I won. <laughs> got the friggin black cover yes man that was a great era for the magazine man i swear there was a lot of magazines released with like figures on the front as well it was like a i don't know if the kurt angle one might have been 1999 maybe it might have been a little bit earlier yes so that was right before i got there i know what you're talking about but we would do foil covers variant covers we would do like where there'd be like mini magazines inside or uh, trading cards. We did. A, we were doing a lot of that stuff. That was partly because, you know, the reality of it was that even back then, at that time, magazines were starting to decline, you know, in sales and things, and the internet was really hurting. And so we were trying to think of ways to get people's attention. We would have collectible multiple covers. Like when we did the 10th anniversary of Monday Night Raw, 
which was a raw thing, raw magazine. We had variant covers with different collages. We had four different covers where like one was like uh, Austin and McMahon and another one was like Mick Foley and the rock. And another one was Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and like just different eras of raw, but it was just intended to try to help sales. So we, um, from what I can gather, um, Vince Russo used to, he started off working as an editor on the magazine. Is that right? Yeah. Not only did he start that way, but even when he was booking TV and the head creative writer, he was still technically the publisher and editor in chief of the magazines. Right. He, he, he had other people handling it. Like at that point, Kevin Kelly was kind of his right hand man on the magazines and Dennis Brent was there. Um, and he was sort of, he was still involved, but not as directly anymore. But, but um, he started in the magazines because he had a, um, a radio show. So he was running a, a, a video store in New York where he would get wrestlers coming in for autograph signings. And that started the relationship where he, he became friends with John Arezzi, who had a, ra a wrestling radio show. Arezzi started having him on. Russo took over the radio show and he started booking WWF talent. And then eventually he got his way into the company that way. He knew a guy in the magazines called Ed Ricciuti, who was the editor of the magazines. And Ed knew Vince because of the talent sharing thing of having, you know, and promoting the magazine. And he brought him on the staff of the magazine. And then he, and then he pushed Ed Ricciuti out too. And he took over uh, WWF magazine. And, you know, it, he just, it just kept spiraling and spiraling from there. Now I actually got my job there because of his leaving. Uh, when he left to go to WCW and in late 99, and he took a lot of the staff with him and he took some magazine people with him and stuff. And uh, so the magazines then fell to someone called Barry Werner, who, who had been brought in to help. He was a New York daily news sports editor. So he was pretty respected guy in uh, at the time. And, and uh, he took over and he tried to kind of restaff the magazine and put his stamp on it. Like he moved out Kevin Kelly and Dennis and people that Vince had uh, that Russo had, and he wanted to have some outside people in. And I was one of those people. So I wound up getting in there because Russo left. That, that's kind of why I asked because I, I thought that Russo might have been hanging around until the late nineties and you coming in uh, like early two thousand. So I thought there might have been some kind of you know crossing of paths or anything. But the first time I went in for an interview was October nineteen ninety nine, and he had left like weeks before that. It was the day the company went public. I'll never forget that the day of the public offering of stock. October 1999 and I, I went in for a couple of different interviews and I finally got the job and I started on Valentine's Day 2000 Wow! and Russo was long gone by then in fact when I was there starting it was an interesting time because all the people on the magazine staff that had been there they all knew him and, and a lot of them were friends with him some of them hated him but they were all buzzing because now he's on Nitro <laughs> and he's booking the show and he's on television, which he had never been for WWF. 
And all these people I worked with are like, oh, my God, look at Vince. What is he doing? I can't believe it. He's on TV and all this stuff. And they were watching closely to see what he would do. And at the time, you know, we laugh now to think of it, but there was real fear of like, what is going to happen? Like, is this going to be a turning point now? It was a turning point, but the turning point was it, it killed WCW. <laughs> we thought it was going to be, we thought it was going to be a different kind of turning point. And there was definitely some concern. Crazy. That's incredible. That's actually yeah, a real concern that WCW were turning it around when they were, they were dipping further and further into the mire at that point. It's uh... a lot of people didn't realize at the time, I think. And I, I say all this as somebody who has never met Vince Russo and I would love to, and I don't, I don't want to talk out of turn or talk about someone that I didn't know personally, but my understanding of it was that what worked so well was the chemistry between him and Vince McMahon, that, that Vince, you know, had been, even though Vince was always a very edgy kind of ballsy kind of guy, but his booking and his ideas were very conservative and Russo came along and was like, let's just do all this crazy shit. Like, like it was stuff that I think McMahon had always wanted to do, but he never thought it would work or it wouldn't have a market. He had a family friendly product. And when Russo came along and was doing raw magazine and the tone of raw magazine was like the tone that Vince wanted on his television show, that it gave him the impetus to say, yeah, let's, let's actually do this. And so Russo would come up with crazy ideas. And sometimes he would get reined in by Vince and by McMahon and they would balance each other. So then when he went to WCW, it was more like it was almost like people just thought he was somehow magical, like just his presence there would fix everything. But what they didn't realize it was it was complicated. And so when he goes over there and now he's unrestrained and he's won this war, this political battle with Eric Bischoff and all this other stuff, and he's allowed to do whatever he wants, that's when it's a problem because there was no, there was no one on the other end of the seesaw, you know? So it just uh, went off the rails. That's crazy. Have you ever thought about booking wrestling yourself? No. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want any part of that, no? No. Well, because I'll tell you the, the, uh, I would never do it independently because I don't want to lose all of my money, number one. And, 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 and as far as inside the company, I can tell you that um, when I worked there, there would be lots of times where they would be looking for new people to join the creative writing team. And a lot of times they would turn to the magazine and be like, hey, Stephanie's looking for new writers. Anybody interested? That happened lots of times. And I would always say, no way, not doing it. And there were some people that did do it because look, the turnaround and the burnout. I knew if I did that, I'd be gone in three months. I just knew it. I would be done. Whereas if I stayed where I was, I had a good chance of having a longer career, even though I'm not there anymore. But I was, I, I, I feel very confident that I was right to do that. I didn't want to be anywhere near it. It's like orbiting too close to the sun, you know? So when you wrote the books, the um, the legends of WWE and the um, the uh, the W the other WWE trivia. book, the yeah. um, trivia one, is it? The trivia book. Yeah. yeah. So were you working for WWE at that time? I was. Yeah, I was. the The trivia book 
was something that, you know, I don't even remember how that came about, but it was a group of people. It was me. It was Kevin Kelly. It was another magazine writer named Aaron Williams and um, a web writer named Phil Spear. I think I'm not leaving anybody out. And uh, we all just got together. I think Kevin Kelly kind of spearheaded it maybe where he was like, let's do this trivia thing because I had done, uh, I was doing these random little projects for them. Like uh, it was a WWF trivia game in the nineties. At least there was in America. I don't know if you had it over there, but right. it was put out by a company called Pressman. And um, I wrote the trivia card questions for that game for a later edition of that game, like right. hundreds and hundreds of questions. And um, that's, I, I think, so Kevin was like, well, why don't we, we could like turn that into a book. Like that could be, but it would be partly because WWF had the publishing deal with Simon and Schuster in the United States back then where they had to put out a book a month. Okay. And so it's, that's all well and good when you have like, uh, oh, Mick Foley's got a new book or here's the rocks book. Here's China's book, you know? Yeah. But there's some months where it was like, what are we going to do? There's nothing. And so they were like, hey, let's get these bunch of writers to do a trivia book. Like, that's literally how it would happen. Wow. And that's how that's how WWE Legends happened, too. They, they needed a filler book for that month, you know? So that, that doesn't give you a lot of time to, like, put together a book, you know, edit it and, you know, compile well, it, the, edit it. No, we, we didn't have to do it in a month. But, but right, they would right. say, like, they, you know, let, let's say it's like it's like July 2000. And they would go, okay, this book is going to be the February 2001 book. You're right, slotted right, in right. Okay. for February 2001. That's going to be the book. So get it ready by then. Like it, it would be like that. So they would have gaps in the, in this, in the schedule where they would have stuff obviously, you know, mapped out, but then they're like, oh shit, in six months time, we've got a, a month that we've got nothing. Let's, let's do this. Right. Right. And I think, and look, the only way, because I've thought about it lots of times, <laughs> the only reason that they greenlit the WWE Legends book was because of that. They were desperate. Like, because I had this idea when I worked there back then, they were not doing anything historical. They really weren't. Uh, today, they do much more historical stuff. You know, this was before they brought the Hall of Fame back. This was before not only the network, but WWE 24 7 on demand, before any of that stuff. There was really nothing happening. And I pitched this idea to do a trading card set with the idea being legends um, like old timers without using the term old timers. But the, the idea that I had was very specific. I wanted to focus on the stars from the pre-national expansion of WWF, like before WrestleMania and Hulk Hogan and before when it was still just a territory, wow. the stars of, you know, from the late fifties into the early eighties to focus on them because they never really got the love, especially in that era. Like, like, you know, Antonino Rocca and Bruno San Martino and Buddy Rogers and Ivan Putsky and Ivan Koloff and those kind of people. I wanted to do that. And it turned, it, it's transformed from a trading card set into a book and it became because that they were like oh you know what this could be a book because we need a book in this particular month so let's make it as a book there is no way that they would have ever gone for a book like that 
if they didn't desperately need something for, for a particular month, they would have just been like, why are we doing a book about this? What, why do we care about this? You know, I, I just know it, you know, that's what helped push that book through. Um, well, I've actually got one of the cards here. I think it's one of the WWF legends is Jimmy Garvin. That came later. Yeah. That was, I yeah. think 2007 ish. So, right, and the, the book came out in 2006, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one's signed as well by Jimmy Garvin, but, um, <laughs> do, <laughs> yeah, man, trust me. Um, so do you think that that kind of maybe pushed them to think, hold on a minute, there is a bit of a market. People are a bit hungry I for do. the retrospective look at the business. I do, because it, it also coincided with, the WWE Legends program, which they started, where they would give Legends contracts to people when they brought the Hall of Fame back. They created a whole logo, like the logos on that card you just showed That's me. That's right, WWE. yeah, yeah. And I was very lucky because the, what I pitched, the title of the book that I pitched was originally, it was going to be called Legends of the WWF, right? So then it became Legends of WWE. And I was very lucky because then the, the Legends program started where the, where the WWE Legends program, and they were like, hey, what if we call the book WWE Legends? And it will tie directly in with the Legends program. And I think it might have been the first time the logo was even used because it's used on the cover of the book. It's basically used as the title of the book on the cover. And that helped get the ball rolling too, because I can tell you that I had the book finished in 2003. It was done. I wrote it in six months in 2003, and it just sat around until 2006. And I think it was because they were getting that program running and because they were waiting for an open month. <laughs> and when they finally got an open month that they considered was so unimportant that they could put my book in it, <laughs> that's, when, that's when WWE Legends finally came out. That was my first book. That's crazy. I mean, and, and look at how huge and really is huge that the, the Hall of Fame is now, really. It is, yeah. you know, the, at the time of WrestleMania, it's, I mean, it's absolutely huge. I mean, I've always been a fan of it. I mean, my favourite, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a few good years where they had a few good people, but I think you must have been working for them at the time. Mine was 2004, just strictly for Bobby DeBrain Heenan. Um, but that, that whole uh, class of 2004 that were inducted that year, it's a fantastic year for, for, for legends, basically. Um, I don't know if right. you remember much about that. Yeah, well, Bobby Heenan, a lot of people say that was the greatest induction speech of all time, and they might be yeah. right. Um, you know, it was... A lot of people forget that in the beginning, the Hall of Fame was a very inside thing. It was a dinner. It was just a banquet for the company. And there might have been a handful of tickets sold and fans, but it was really just for them. It was an inside thing. And then when they brought it back, which I think was 03 or 04 that year you mentioned, um, in the beginning, it it was still kind of that where it was just kind of for the boys and you could tell that it was, and they had, but they had like limited seats, but then it slowly, but surely as it got tied to WrestleMania, it became more like a TV show for the fans more than it was even for the boys anymore. It was something a little bit different. You could just see that transformation that happened where it became a TV show, you know, where in the beginning it wasn't really treated that way. It was just, it was treated like a dinner or a function 
where they just happen to have cameras rolling, you know, recording it, you know? I, I was at the uh, 2008 Hall of Fame for the longest speech of all time. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, that was something Which else. Which one was, was that? Because there have been a Rick, lot of those. Rick Flair. He was, Rick was told to get off stage at least three times by Triple H. Um, <laughs> Triple H Amazing. had to keep coming out. Yeah, it was a... Uh, it was a, it was really something else. It was something special. It was hilarious. But like, yeah, well, I, I remember there been a few like that. Like, I think when I remember when the blackjacks went in, that blackjack Lanza talked for like an hour. Or something <laughs> oh, crazy. Shit. Some of these were because I think that might have been one of the ones where it was the banquet. So there was less control. Uh, I was there for. Well, as a fan, I went in later years to the 2013 one in Madison Square Garden because I wanted to see Bruno San Martino go in. And uh, they had Bob Backlund on stage, who, for whatever reason, I wish he didn't choose to do this, but he was in character for his induction speech as of crazy course. Mr. Bob Backlund. <laughs> and they had to send Kane with his entrance music and everything. Kane come on stage and pull Bob Acklin off the stage, which was sad because it was like, yeah. this was a man who was in the building where he sold out for years on end as the world champion and kids loved him and everything. And now he's, I don't know. It, it was, that was a little sad, but you know, the hall of fame is known for these really long meandering uh, speeches. I thought the only one, you know, like the undertaker one really worked for me because it was very well done. And I was like, you know what? I don't mind them letting this guy talk as long as he wants. Like he's, he's earned that. Mm. And it's not just some rambling, you know, nonsense. Like yeah. it's a very well thought out speech. I thought it was great. Uh, it would be, it would be sort of remiss to bring, uh, not ask this question, but I saw a tweet uh, from you the other day. Uh, you, sort uh -oh. of, you mentioned impact and talking about their numbers. Like I'd like to ask yeah. you how, how you feel about the current state of you know the the top three promotions in the US right now, right? And see how you feel because we have our own opinions on companies, so Chris in particular. But I I love TNA stroke. Yeah, Impact I know you wrestling. love TNA. And Impact, I, I do. The I, other I, one. It's you the know, other I, one I, I have been a huge fan of Impact Wrestling and TNA for many years, but I saw Josh Alexander saying something about. AEW kind of coming in and, and and picking a load of people and stuff. So it's it is a quite a, a strange time, but an exciting time. And yeah, what 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 are your thoughts on it at the minute? Well, you'll notice in the tweet you're mentioning at the beginning of it, I even said I'm not even counting the actual quality of the show because I know like that's right. I don't watch it religiously, but I know people that will tell me that it's actually pretty damn good if you sit down and give it a chance. Yeah, not even not even counting that i mean i understand that but even just looking at their numbers at this point it's like i don't even understand why they would still be on because like wrestlemania night one had more people in the audience than the amount of people <laughs> that watch impact on television i'm not even exaggerating on yeah. any given on any given week if you could fit your entire tv viewership into a building that's not good. So I'm going, um, how is this allowed? And then, of course, people say, well, don't you know that they're owned by the same company that owns the network? Yes, I know that. I know that. Yeah. I'm still saying, why? That yeah. makes it even more confusing. If I own a network and I own this product, 
that I'm airing on my network and no one's watching it, I'm going to take it off my network, even if I own it. I'm going to say, can we maybe put infomercials on there? Can somebody pay us to put programming on there? Why are we, you know, that even the fact that Anthem owns Access TV doesn't, to me, sufficiently explain why Impact is still on the air. And I don't mean that to be snarky. It's just when you look at their numbers and you go, if this was any other TV show, there's no way it would still be on. Not only still on, but 20 years of bouncing around from Mm -hmm. network to network and owner to owner. How is this even happening? It's it's almost like they have some weird like deal with the devil or something. some, Some weird thing has happened. Like, I don't even know. You mentioned like the top three companies. I'm not even sure half the time if I would even call them number three. Four, yeah. I, <laughs> I think four, you no. can make an argument in the U.S. that possibly the NWA could be considered number three. Yeah. Um, Ring of Honor now, maybe. As Ring well, of Honor. Well, but Ring G- of Honor. GCW might, might be there. GCW. You know what? You're right. Forget. I love NWA, but you're right. GCW is number three right now. I have no doubt in my mind. GCW yeah. is number three. So and, and Impact might be number five, which is... <laughs> You know, nuts, and uh, you've got Ring of Honor is a tough one because, especially right now, calling Ring of Honor its own company is like calling NXT its own company. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. uh, NXT is WWE with a different brand on it. You know, and 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 Ring of Honor is now AEW with a different brand on it. You know, that's so. It, it's if you're going by brands, yes, but if you're going by actual different companies. Ring of Honor no longer is its own company, you know? It, it's a shame because Impact Wrestling and TNA, for the longest time, they've always, like you say, they've bounced around from this network to this one, and Access TV is just a weird one to have it on. They've always been like a a really hard company to watch or to find where they are, you know? They've, they've never... I mean, in the UK, we had a channel called Bravo, right? And... It started at like, I don't know if you had a um, a program. It was like used to show kids TV. It was in America called Trouble. Maybe I don't know. It was it was called Trouble. So Trouble it used to play like fucking you know hanging with Mr. Cooper like Saved by the Bell, the new class, and all this kind yeah, of shit. Yeah, we, we have like Nickelodeon or the Disney Channel and things like that that show that stuff. It was similar kind of stuff. So we had it in the UK, and it was called Trouble. And then around six or seven o'clock, it, it would turn flip, off, and yeah. it would and it would change into Bravo, and then it would have like kind of laddish laddish kind of culture on there so it was like um you know like cars and like you know weird crap like that and and tna was on there so it was on bravo so the pay-per-views were on there um the weekly tv impact which was obviously what their weekly tv show was called before they rebranded and called the show itself impact so it was really weird i mean and that was a free uh cable channel um it's it's weird but then yeah for years after that it's just been here and there and on i honestly don't know what channel it's on in the uk right now when i made that uh when i made that tweet somebody responded and it really is so perfect they called impact the zombie wrestling promotion because it's like they're, they're dead but they keep moving and and they they keep existing even though they're dead it's very strange 
strange it's, company it is crazy how they're still going i mean we've we've even commented haven't we on the on the podcast like how is tna i always call it fucking <laughs> tna but how is impact wrestling still surviving it i mean is ted turner secretly running anthem or something is this what we're going to find out <laughs> a higher power no but you know and when i say things like that i think sometimes people take it the wrong way because right now you have this very like clannish clickish like tribalist oh, was horrific version sure. of of wrestling where it's like i'm a, a fan of this company and i like this company and i can't like your company and i hope you fail and blah 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 now i come from an era i grew up watching wrestling in the 80s where even though the territories were dying you had you know crockett promotions you had the awa struggling along you had memphis and you had world-class still trying to do things and there were things happening and you were, you know, you might have a company you preferred or it was your local, whatever, but you were a wrestling fan. You know, you bought, you, you bought a wrestling magazine and you wanted to learn about the other stuff that you didn't get to see. And, you know, you were a fan of what we would then call the sport of pro wrestling. You didn't think in terms of brands, you know, this is something that WWE has really worked hard to create and market and establish and it's now been internalized so like you have fans now that they're just fans of a brand so when i say something like how is tna still on the air how is impact still i'm not saying it because i want impact to fail or i'm being snarky and saying oh aren't they terrible look at this show hmm. i'm saying it from a business point of view i'm sure, looking, it's an observation yeah right i'm reading the observer he's giving the numbers year over year and i'm going 55,000 people watched 55,000 people like the, they're not missing any zeros there that's how <laughs> many people watched it it was a 0 0.03 rating and i'm just going how are they still on tv not because i don't want them to be on tv yeah. it's an observation like you yeah. said more people watch a single football game in the uk literally in yeah. one stadium for that that's what i know? mean yeah, we've got That's like 60,000, 70,000 in, you know, upward stadium. Someone will go and watch a, a football game on the weekend with that. It's insane, actually. I mean, it, it it's just because I think they've almost, I don't know how involved Dixie Carter is and, 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 and that in it anymore. I've really lost touch with it. But in the past, people obviously were saying, look, she had a, a bottomless pit of money literally was just shoveling fucking dollars into it Sounds um, familiar yeah well i mean it is you know so it's i almost again like you say it's amazing to think they're still going and how it's possible they must have some kind of faustian deal um that that, that they've you know someone shook someone's hoof and um yeah. that's it it's yeah. fucking yeah. we will it's never like die yeah, it's like Black Philip and the witch, you know, just some kind of weird, some weird deal has has been struck to to live deliciously in impact. It's it's so sad though, really, because you think about the ta I mean, I've, as you can see, I've got figures behind me, fucking loads of them, but in front of me is like my TNA impact wall, and you know, you've got people like Samoa Joe, you know. Kurt Angle, AJ Styles, Sting was there for a long time. You know, there was there's some real good talent that's come through there. Eric Young, you know, um, 
uh, Elijah Burke when he was, you know, the Pope D'Angelo De Niro and all this kind of stuff. You know, um, Bobby Lashley was there for many, many years. Should have not more ratings. Yeah. Not only was Bobby Lashley there for years, but he 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 reinvented himself there. You yeah. would not you would not be seeing the run he's having right now in WWE if it wasn't for what he did in Impact. He would have 100%. just been a forgettable WWE yep. also ran from the 2000s. Like he made himself into a legit superstar and then came back a bigger star than he was, which by the way, also Drew McIntyre did. Too. Yep, Drew McIntyre did. AJ Styles literally made his career in Impact Wrestling. Um, mm-hmm. Like you say, yeah, Bobby Lashley has happened numerous times to guys that they've gone to Impact or TNA and they've been able to kind of rejuvenate themselves there. But now, like you say, it's not even a, a fourth, fifth, almost sick string company at the moment, which is because they've got some good talent there. You know, they've got, they really have, um, but yeah. no one fucking watches. Sad. No, no. And I mean, look, I don't really watch it. And I mean, I'm somebody that tries to keep on top of everything, but I don't have the channel that they're on. Um, but I mean, there's still ways to watch it if I really wanted to, obviously. Sure. I, I'm not motivated to put that effort in every week and like it's just uh, I watch NWA most of the time I actually have a subscription because they're on fight TV over here and I have a subscription to their package where I pay to watch it because I think it's worthwhile um, or at least more worthwhile than watching impact I you know but that's but that's my own personal preference like I and like many other people they just lost me over the years when you're uh, from changing networks and going on all different times and changing their name and just all this crazy stuff going on. You lose a lot of people that way, you know, yeah. and I, I'm one of those people. <laughs> I mean, Flair and Hogan were there. Bischoff was there. I was at bound for glory 2011 in Philadelphia, where it was Hulk Hogan's final American match. Wow. And it was him against sting Yeah, where he turned babyface. Hogan was the heel and he turned face at the end because I guess it was Flair. Was it Flair was in Hogan's corner as a heel and then Flair turned on him and started beating him down and Sting saved Hogan. And then Hogan went out on top as a, as a face. I was there that night. That was, a, that was a great show actually. They've really have put on some good shows. They used to come to England. They used to come do a UK tour Um and it, it was it was pretty good, man. The the shows were were pretty decent. Um, yeah, because I think Hogan had his very very final final matches over there for TNA. The, mm. the tag team match he did a couple of tag team matches over there. Yeah, and they were they were his actual last matches. And I think somebody told me, I don't know, maybe 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 you guys were there. I don't know, but somebody told me that he came out to Eye of the Tiger. Now that to me <laughs> alone would be worth the price of admission. Almost like they knew it was his going to be his last match. And they were just like, screw it. We're going to use eye of the tiger. And and they let him use it, which he hadn't been allowed to use since like 1985, you know, (laughs) it's crazy. How how do you feel about AEW at the minute? Like it's seems to be stuck in a, in a pit of its own sort of, and it's like, it's in its own way. It's like, it's, it's not breaking it's not breaking past that 1.2 mil in America. It just seems to be stuck. Well, the, like a million and under. Like, where, where is it going wrong? Their numbers have improved since NXT 
was moved off Wednesdays. Yeah. Their numbers have gone up from what they are from a year ago. Um, I mean, I think, I don't think there's anything going wrong. I think, look, it's still dynamite is still the most to my, for my money is the most entertaining weekly wrestling show currently happening. Um, it, it's not perfect. I have issues with their product. There's things I, I love. There's things I I'm not crazy about, but they're, they may have reached the limit of how far they can grow. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll be proven very wrong about that, but uh, it's a question of how many people can you get to watch wrestling in 2022? And, you know, there's all, there's the issues of people not having cable as much anymore, especially in the United States and uh, disconnecting. And so they're watching it in other ways. I mean, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but but I, I think some people were mentioning how um, their YouTube shows, which are like afterthoughts, which are like with squash matches and C-level talent, because of the nature of it being on YouTube, those shows actually have more people watching them than Dynamite and Rampage, um, which, which goes to show you how everything's changing so much. Um, it's not just a wrestling problem. It's a TV problem in general, the kind of numbers that shows do now. Um, WWE and AEW, they're fighting for scraps. You know, they're excited because the show got like a 1.8 or something like I can remember the days where if you just ran like a test pattern for three hours, you'd get a 1.8. You know what I mean? Like like Raw was doing sixes and sevens and and not only and, and even like the, the, the hottest network shows, if they do like a three or a four, it's considered like one of the hottest shows on television, mm. whereas that used to be like kind of eh, especially if you were like a big network show. Um so who knows how it'll all shake out. Even the Super Bowl here in America is not getting anywhere near the numbers it used to get. The Academy Awards, which, you know, billions of viewers worldwide, the ratings have been plummeting on things like that. Um, it's it's a weird time. It's it's very hard to predict. So, talking about the Academy Awards, the Will Smith slap, was it a work? No, it was not a work. <laughs> I think you have a lot of people that watch way too much wrestling, way too much wrestling. If you, if you use your brain for two seconds and you think why in the world would they do something like this? Who is benefiting from this? Like Will Smith is, is kind of ruined. And even even if he's not ruined the work he will have to do to recuperate himself is why would he be like, Oh yeah, let's do this on live TV. No, of course. These, these are people who they think of everything in wrestling terms, everything just because Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler was a work. It doesn't mean everything is a work. I mean, come on, use your head. Oh, man, I listened just for the pure fucking entertainment value of it. I listened to Eric Bischoff and Jeff Jarrett talk for 25 minutes or so on how it was a work and how you know Chris Rock stood there and leaned into it and stuff and they were like breaking it down and like pausing the shot and I was like jeez and one guy said to me well didn't you hear that really fake sound effect when he hit his face it was this really loud why would you hear that loud thing and I said well you do realize he has a microphone, microphone. right yep. here. And there was, there was no response to that. None. But that's the thing, like, like just the slightest bit of mental effort 
and it falls apart, you know, of, of uh, you know, the, the it, it was just something that never should have happened. And clearly, if it, if it had been a work, it never would have got that far because somebody would have been like, please do not do this. <laughs> Don't do this. You know, uh, there's nothing to be gained from from doing this. Smith never slapped his thigh, so I'm don't I'm don't that. yeah don't forget half the people you're talking about debating this think that the the Earth is flat. So I mean <laughs> I don't know how much we could put in into their uh, faith we could put in their levels of analysis. So, <laughs> so um, I swear I think AJ Styles said something about that, didn't he as well? He is he is supposed to be a flat earther, AJ Styles. Yes, yeah, yeah, I did hear yeah. that, man. I did hear that. Um, I mean, it's all right. So let's talk about wrestlers then. Let's talk about yes, fucking. Let's. Let, let's talk about individuals. So you you've obviously been around the business, been in the business, spoken to hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the wrestling sphere. Um, you know. So you're working with, with ECW Press at the moment. Yes. Um, and I'm taking it you've you've met a few people that are, were in ECW, then obviously doing the research for uh, the book. Um, I mean, who's the strangest person that you've met in the wrestling business? Well, just to clarify, ECW Press actually has nothing to do with ECW. It, it's a very bizarre, strange coincidence. Right. And part of it is because they also happen to publish a lot of wrestling books. People assume that, but it, but there's no connection. It stands for something entirely different. I do not know what it stands for, but something different. <laughs> yeah. They publish lots of other types of books, not just wrestling. And it really is just a pure coincidence. Uh, but um, I wanted to, when I was thinking of a new book and who I wanted it to be about, being the, the original chic, I came to them because they have that reputation for being the most legit mainstream, like serious book publishers who handle wrestling stuff. Right. And they had just done the, on the Andre, the giant biography. There was Bill after did his book with them. John Arezzi had his book come out and I thought, uh, let me give it a shot. It's worth it. And I think part of the reason why ECW <laughs> press agreed to it, is uh, that ECW Press is a Canadian company and the Sheik had been a huge name in Montreal and Toronto, among other places. And so I think they felt there was a big crossover appeal there with their Canadian readers. So I have that probably to thank for them agreeing to let me write a book about somebody who's been dead for 20 years and who, you know, peaked before I was even born, you know, in the early 70s. So uh, I'm very grateful that they gave it a chance because I was I just like gave it a shot. I was like, what the hell? Let's see what they say. If they say no, I'll just think of something else. And they 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 were all about it. So, I mean, the the the, the original Sheik was wrestling in the fucking late 50s, right? He was like late, late 40s. Even he started. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. absolutely incredible. And right yeah, he, up until the nineties, right? He did some FMW stuff as well. Yeah, he he wrestled. Um, you know, he he basically uh, he stopped. He went into semi-retirement in the early eighties, where he wasn't working a full schedule anymore. He was only doing occasional dates here and there all through the rest of the nineties. Uh, I'm sorry, the rest of the eighties. But when he got to the nineties, all of a sudden, 
91, 92, 93, 94. He's working back to almost a full-time schedule in his 60s in Japan, wrestling for Tsushi Onida and FMW, who, by the way, are paying him $10,000 an appearance. Now, I would have done the same thing. So yeah. would anybody. Yeah, man. Especially yeah. when, and they know he could hardly move, and he was just going down to the ring and kind of throwing fire and chasing people around for four minutes. And then you come back through the curtain and they hand you 10 grand. Sure. Sign me up. I mean, who's not going to do that? You know, he made, he made probably millions doing that. I mean, he, he definitely um, influenced a, a quite a few wrestlers as well in, in, in his style. I mean, he, he, he actually did play the, the mad, the mad man, right? It was, it was literally, you know, and you've got guys like, uh, Oh, his son was in WWF, Tiger Jeet Singh. You remember Tiger yes. Jeet Singh? He used to do right. the similar thing with the fucking sword, right? He used to go out in the crowd right. and chat, you know, it was a very not not samey, but it was a very similar kind of gimmick, you know? Right. He was so yeah, Tiger Jeet Singh, who actually is from India, he was using the whole like he was like the mad Indian. Yeah. And and, and the Sheik was the mad Arab. So they were like a perfect <laughs> match for each other. And they, yeah, they feuded all over the world. Yeah. Uh, the, now, Singh was gigantic, though, the huge man. The Sheik really was not. He was a very average-sized person, maybe about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, about 210, 215 pounds, even though both height and weight were exaggerated, of course, because he's yeah. a wrestler. But, like, so he had to make up for that lack of size to be just as fearsome as a lot of those other guys were. But... Yeah, Tiger Jeet Singh was a big early progenitor of that hardcore crazy style. And also, coincidentally, was big in Japan, too, just like the Sheik. Yeah. Remember Tiger Jeet Singh? I've got on VHS. I'm a huge VHS collector. And I've got the deathmatch tournament, um, you know, the, 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 the infamous one. And Tiger Jeet Singh sings in that uh, one. And he was huge over there. Absol and he was going absolutely crazy in the crowd. Um, yeah incredible incredible stuff just just how big was uh the sheik in detroit like i mean we're not you know we obviously we're not old enough to know as much about the uh sort of the territories and that but like all we all i ever read about was how big he was in detroit and he was a he was you know really big name like for for decades yeah so you know of course in those days you had the the especially in North America, you had the wrestling territories and there were about 30 to 35 of them at any given time. You know, WWF was only one of them of that many. And um, so whereas like in those days, WWF would have been the Northeastern United States, which would be like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and a lot of New England states going down to Washington, D.C. Um, the Sheik had control of a territory that basically in the United States would be considered like part of the Midwest. So it was uh, Michigan, Ohio, uh, parts of Indiana, and even like going into Southern Ontario, province of Ontario in Canada, which is, which borders on Michigan. Yeah. And so that realm, you know, he started out as a wrestler there because he's from that area. He's from Lansing, Michigan. And he started out just as a mid-carder, you know, there and other places. 
he you know he he was an attraction all over because it was an exotic kind of unique gimmick but then when the promoters in that region who were Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle when they decided to go to Australia those guys they owned pieces of a lot of american promotions and they decided they were going to take up business in Australia where there really wasn't a lot of wrestling at the time and they wound up establishing what became like the the biggest promotion in the history of Australia and in some ways one of the most successful in the world and ironically it was called World Championship Wrestling and it's funny because Jim Barnett the guy who ran it World Championship Wrestling he eventually when he moved back he took over Georgia Championship Wrestling and he renamed that World Championship Wrestling and that's kind of where WCW got their name so it's a weird connection but when he was trying to leave America he sold his territory to the Sheik. And so the Sheik now is in control of this official. He joined the National Wrestling Alliance, which was like this confederation of all the territories. And he had official sanctioned control of that region. So, of course, you know, he made himself the biggest star in that territory. So by, when that happens, like 64, all of a sudden he becomes like this consistent main event guy dominating their top title which was the united states heavyweight championship and also touring the rest of uh the territories as a major star and his so his heyday is probably like from that early to mid 60s up until the early to mid 70s especially he's like one of the hottest things in the business yes which is hard to do especially as a heel you know to be if you look at like Meltzer even did like the year by year breakdowns of who is the number one box office draw in wrestling each year, you will see there's like three or four years in that range where it's the chic. Like that's a big deal uh, for a heel to do that. And, and even the other years around there where he's not number one, he's probably like two or three, you know? So, so, I mean, he was a huge star, huge. Would, would you say that was that was his peak then? What do you reckon, like mid sixties to what mid seventies, early eighties? I would say his peak as a wrestler, as a star, is probably like sixty four to seventy four, and and uh, particularly even the Detroit territory, it's like late sixties, early seventies. You could even make an argument that they may have been the hottest territory in the country at in those years uh, at certain points. And, you know, it's it's a it's a, it's a short time, though, like that the company is so hot because like they burned really bright. They got really hot and then it just kind of collapsed and the Sheik's career collapsed. And you can see like from 74 onward, it's like this downward trajectory. His company went out of business in 1980. And he just, which is way before Vince McMahon and the WWF expansion. And he's just kind of limping along after that, trying to keep going. And, you know, the NWA blacklisted him and he, Vince didn't have any, you know, spot for him. And it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's a story that starts out really strong and, and amazing. And it's very impressive, but then it kind of gets very sad and tragic in the later years until he starts earning 10 grand for appearances in Japan. No, you're right. And, and, and he jumped, but he jumped on that because he had been going for years of, you know, he went bankrupt. He lost his house. Wow. He almost lost, you know, his, 
he he bought another house and almost lost that. Um, he he was in a lot of trouble. Nobody wanted to work with him anymore. He he had really fallen out of fashion. He was considered like a dinosaur, and so that that Japan deal was um, exactly what he needed. But you know, in a lot of ways, because like we were joking and saying, how could you turn this money down? From a health point of view, it was a very bad idea mm. because it almost killed him a couple of times. I mean, he was a grandfather. He he was approaching seventy. There was no way he should have been doing things like that, you know. So it was like it was desperation. It was it was money that he needed so badly, and he was banking on his name power, which in Japan had still held up a lot better than it did in the United States because they hadn't seen him in a long time, and uh, so he was able to exploit that towards the end of his career but i think i think it hastened um even the end of his life honestly because he stopped doing it in 95 and he only lived uh, you know um he lived for eight more years but really the last few of them were very bad like like really nobody saw him for the last three or four years of his life he was just home in the house didn't he break his legs like pretty close to the end of his career as well like pretty badly yeah, um, that was when Sabu was in WCW. So yeah. um, the Sheik had just retired. And so he went back home to Lansing. And Sabu got this deal with WCW. And he decided to take advantage of it and go, hey, we're doing Halloween Havoc in Detroit. Can I have my uncle be my manager? You know, And he was kind of hoping that if it worked out, maybe it would be a long-term thing. It would be like a role for his uncle to have. Yeah. And even though he couldn't really get around and do much, that's something he could do. He could kind of, you know, walk to the ring and w- shake his sword around a little bit, maybe Shout like throw, throw, throw a fireball. Yeah. And it was a disaster. So if you, uh, Halloween Havoc, it's Sabu versus JL, who was Jerry Lynn. That's right. And, um, and uh, uh, Sabu does a moonsault off the ropes to the outside he lands on jl he also lands on his uncle by accident and he falls down and breaks his leg uh which i think also it's not that terrible of a bump if you see it on tv i think part of it was Sheik was so frail at that time and he had a disorder like a he didn't i don't think he knew it yet but he had like a cancer in his bones and it was weakening his, his skeletal structure so he broke his leg. And what the craziest thing is, if you watch this thing, he gets up and he's at ringside for the rest of the match on a broken leg. And he's still walking around, shaking the sword, doing all his crazy stuff. And he uh, at the end of the match, he throws a fireball at Jerry Lynn, who has the distinction of being the last person to ever take a fireball from the Sheik. But <laughs> the problem was he had never okayed that with anybody. <laughs> And WCW didn't know he was going to do it. He just went into business for himself. (laughs) And so the combination of this guy just broke his leg in the match and he threw fire at one of our contracted talent. They just said to Sabu, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. And that was the one and only appearance that Sheik made uh, for WCW. And it was actually, if I remember right, it was the last appearance that he ever made for any uh, major promotion. The only thing he did after that was his retirement ceremony in 98 with FMW. That was it. 
I, I think that WCW Halloween Havoc, we're going to have to review that one next. Oh because boy. Yeah, that's uh, do it. Yeah. So we, we'll have to see. That's how it's we start. It's not Halloween Havoc 95. Yeah. yeah. Halloween Havoc 95 in the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit. That's for sure got to be the next one, George. Did, did, um, did Sabu have um, a lot of input with the book? No, uh, he did not. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have liked him to. And um, the, the, the problem is that, you know, a lot of times with wrestling books and things, there's an expectation of money, you know, and this isn't, uh, you know, Sabu did his own book called uh, Scars, Silence and Superglue, which I read and it's good and it was very helpful. And, you know, that that was a way for him to be paid for telling his story. But ECW Press is not going to pay people to be interviewed for a book unless it's their book. Sure. So the minute you start doing that, then everybody wants to get paid. And not only that, but, you know, in the world outside of wrestling books, you know, with biographies and nonfiction books, it's not really the way to do business. In fact, it's looked on as it, it, it kind of hurts the credibility of your book if you're, if paying, you're paying everybody. People. Yeah. Right. You're paying people to talk to you then it sort of like twists the book. And I didn't, you know, w, ECW Press is not going to do it. I don't have the money to pay anybody to be interviewed. I mean, I'm barely being paid to write the book. You know, it's not, I think people think I'm becoming like a multimillionaire. You know, I'm, I'm a school teacher and I could probably make in about six weeks teaching English in high school uh, what I would make writing this book so it's not like i'm i'm cashing in on some you know i wrote this to tell the story and to preserve the legacy of the sheik so you know the bottom line was that we couldn't make a deal because money was a it was a deal breaker and it wasn't anything there was no animosity it wasn't you know it was very matter of fact you know i reached out to him he responded to me and it sort of went nowhere um i did benefit from the fact that um I was really, really close friends with Melissa Coates, who was his uh, the super genie. She was his girlfriend, his his valet. And we had gone back to the WWE developmental days. She was in WWE developmental when I was working there. And um, she would help me. You know, she would kind of go back and forth and try to try to persuade him or or get maybe some answers out of him for me. And she made sure that I got a copy of his book. Uh, which I paid for, um, but but she made sure it got into my hands. Unfortunately, she passed away before my book was done. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we we had a few dealings back and forth. And I, I wish, you know, in some ways, I wish I could have had a lot of family involvement because you get things like you get unique stories and insights. You get photography that you're never going to get anywhere else. But there's also a flip side of that where you could potentially lose control of your work and your project yeah. and you have to tell the story a certain way. And I really liked being independent. And I kept saying to people, even Sheik's own son, who I was dealing with at the time, um, I would say, look, um, if you want this story told a certain way, write your book. You know, you're the son of the Sheik. This is my book. <laughs> this is my project. I conceptualized it. I pitched it. I have an idea of the kind of story I want to tell. Um, I would like to get your, you know, experiences, but it's not your book <laughs> and with all due respect. <laughs> and if you want to be paid and if you want to get your version of the story out and all this, write your own book. Uh, so it, 
that was sort of like the stalemate that occurred. And, so, uh, sorry, yeah, you've got the um, the Ford written by RVD as well. I did, and um, you know, uh, would it would have? This is no RVD is amazing. I love him, and he wrote the thing himself, a hundred percent. You know, and I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, shouldn't that have been Sabu that wrote the forward to the book and all that? I would have loved for Sabu to write the forward of the book. But but again, like I said, you know, Rob um, understood the way that the process worked, that, uh, you know, it's something he's contributing to my book and it's his experiences and insights that he's sharing. And by the way, for people listening that may not be aware, like why RVD? Well, RVD and Sabu were both trained by the Sheik. Yeah. And they're prop, they're by far his most famous and successful Proteges, RVD even more so, honestly than Sabu. I mean, Sabu yeah. is an extremely influential wrestler and 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 had a huge impact on other people, but RVD had much more success in his career. You know, and he was a world champion, WWE main eventer, and Impact and everywhere else, and of course CCW and Japan. So uh, that's why I approached him. And he did such a great job. And, you know, I want to stress, he wrote it himself, because a lot of times when people write a forward for a book, <laughs> if they're famous, they didn't really write it. I mean, I don't think I'm revealing anything shocking yeah. most of the time. In fact, most of the time they didn't really write it. And sometimes they didn't even approve of it. They just said, yeah, you could put my name on it. Like so sometimes they don't even look at it. And in my case, he wrote it top to bottom. The, all I did was fix typos, you know, <laughs> he, he wrote that forward and I'm so glad that he did. And he did, it was so nice of him to agree to do it. And then to agree to come on my podcast, to talk about the sheet and, and to talk about the book. In fact, I saw recently that he, um, he mentioned it on busted open radio, which, uh, I don't know if you, do you have that over there? Cause we have Sirius XM satellite radio. Um, we, we, we don't have the serious like thing, but we have, uh, I mean, we can, we can get busted open. We can get, um, you know, the guys on yeah. whoever they've, yeah, they, they've got on. Cause on. busted open radio is probably over here. The biggest like wrestling radio show that there is. And, um, and he was on for, of course, for 420, they had Rob Van Dam on. Of course. Yeah. And, and he he plugged the book and he mentioned me by name and I thanked him. I was just so it was very cool of him to do. That's great, man. That's fucking that's good shit. Um, I mean, sound so, like Vince McMahon when you say that. Yeah, that's good shit. We, that's it, good it, shit, pal. Did you ever get a good shit, pal, from Vince? Yeah. <laughs> no, but but he did tell me to take my head out of Dave Meltzer's ass once. Oh shit! <laughs> so I have that. <laughs> And um, and just for, just for the sake of the interview, what was your head doing up Dave Meltzer's ass, or was it in fact even up there? Well, I've told this story, but Vin, he Vince had this idea that a lot of us, and it wasn't totally wrong, that a lot of the writers and the wrestling fans in the creative end of the company, you know, a lot of us were reading The Observer, and right. I think he was concerned about the influence Meltzer was having on us because Meltzer's uh, approach to wrestling, his philosophy of good wrestling is very different from Vince McMahon's. And I know this because I've spoken to both of them about their philosophies about wrestling and it's very different. And they've both mentioned the other one by name when talking about 
how it's different. Um, so the weird thing was it was, you know, again, I, I have told this before. So if I sound repetitive to people that are, have listened to other interviews I've done, I apologize, but it's a great story where I, I used to have to pitch uh, magazine ideas to Vince directly. And the reason was because I was working for Shane. So Shane would bring me to his dad and be like, tell my dad, tell, tell my dad those ideas you told me about and see what he says, you know? <laughs> and I would be sitting in a conference room, a boardroom, and it would be like a round table and Vince is there and it's like, okay, now it's time for the publications people, Brian, go. And I'd be like, okay, Vince, here's what we're looking at for the September issue of SmackDown magazine. And I'm going, why in the world am I, this would be like if I worked for Disney and I'm in the office of like the CEO of Disney and I'm going, here's this new goofy t-shirt we're going to be making. Would tell us what you think. Like that you would think this would be, he'd be so far above this, but he wasn't. So I'm, I'm running down these ideas. First, he starts to pretend to fall asleep. That's the first thing he did. Uh, you know, I'm like, we're going to do an interview with Booker T and he's going, <laughs> and then my next idea. So I told him we wanted to do, this sounds like the most innocent thing ever. We'd like to do an article on the history of steel cage matches or something, or the greatest steel cage matches of all time. And that's when he said to me, you know, you guys need to take your head out of Meltzer's ass. And I think I took, it took me a minute. Like, I don't understand what's the connection and I think in his mind, he he sees anything that's historical because Meltzer, you know, he does those great history pieces in The Observer all the time. Anything that's historical and divorced from storyline, but just history for its own sake, and that is not being done as a way to make money like the Hall of Fame. To him, that's Meltzer. Like he immediately thinks, oh, that's Meltzer's kind of shit, you know. So the minute I brought up something historical in that way that was not tied to an angle on TV, he was just totally annoyed by it. And, and that's why he said that. I think that's my theory. I, I don't know at the end of the day what he was thinking, but that's definitely what he said to me. Take my head out of Dave Meltzer's ass. Yep. That's me. So here's a quick question for you then on, on, on that vein. Sure. In your opinion, the dirt sheets or the rag sheets brother, as uh, Hulk Hogan said once, um, do you feel that they have had a negative effect or they, the way they are now and the amount, pure amount of them that they are, you know, like these online wrestling dirt sheets, rag sheets behind the scenes, this is happening, that's happening. Do you think that that's overall had a negative effect on how wrestling is perceived, first of all, and how nothing's really a surprise anymore um and and overall do you think that is negative on on the wrestling business it's complicated yeah. it's complicated because when dave started doing his thing as the observer at the beginning of the 80s it was the first of its kind it wasn't a magazine it wasn't a fanzine or it was something that the wrestling business needed which was an industry newsletter it was like the wrestling version of here in America, we have Variety newspaper or Hollywood Reporter 
which go back to the early days of Hollywood. And it would be like, it would only be read by people in the business who wanted to learn about what was going on in their industry. And wrestling never had that. And that's what The Observer was. And a lot of people hated it, even in the 80s, because they were going, this guy's exposing things. You know, anyone can subscribe to this thing and learn all this stuff. Right. They hated it. There were some people that got it. Like there were a lot of people you would hear about in the wrestling business that had TV backgrounds. Like uh, Lance Russell comes to mind. He was the announcer in Memphis. He loved The Observer. Because he was a guy that came from TV. He came from news. He, he understood the need for having, oh, I want to learn what's happening in my business. You know, he understood that. The problem you have is then when you get to the age of the internet, um, the observer, two things. First of all, the observer probably, uh, the biggest problem is that it's probably read by way many, way more people than it should be read by. Um, where it was originally intended as something for industry people and people who are, even if they're fans, they're very interested in the business side of the business and they follow it for that way. The average casual fan who just watches the shows and, and likes to, you know, just go to the matches, those people, they never needed to read The Observer, quite honestly. But because of the internet, changing the game and being a way you could find things out and everything so many people got exposed that uh i don't think ever really understood what it was supposed to be so sometimes it breaks my brain when i go on twitter and you get people like running him down and calling him a shill and saying why are you giving exposed how much did they pay you to mention brian solomon's chic book is this an endorsement and I'm going, this man is a journalist, you know, mm -hmm. uh, he, he's covering this industry. The uh, Yes, he has his biases. Yes, every journalist does. Everyone who covers any industry has a bias. He has in his mind what's a quote unquote good match. What's a good product? What's good for business? That's reflected in what he writes. The problem is not Dave Meltzer. The problem is there should be 10, 12 other wrestling observers out there written by other people with different biases and different points of view and you get a mix and that's what's good for the business what you have now though is because of the internet you have Meltzer who has been doing this since forever you have a couple of other people like you know Wade Keller has been doing it a very long time with the torch mm -hmm. um Dave Shearer been doing this a very long time but then you also have all these people who they're just, they're running websites. They're fans. Everyone calls what they do dirt sheets, even though they're not dirt sheets. It's just some guy with a website who reads the observer and That's then right. write, he writes about <laughs> what he reads in the observer. Yeah. And that makes the problem even worse because you have these professional people, journalists who are now getting lumped in with all these other people who are not in their league at all. And so it's just a big giant mess. And, and like I said, you get all these people on Twitter and people who are fans that they just don't, with all due respect, they just don't understand. They don't understand what the purpose of these things was supposed to be, you know? And, and um, I think Dave Meltzer has, is, a, is a treasure. He's not perfect. I'll defend him all the time. I think what he does is very valuable and important. And when he's gone and not doing this anymore, 
there is not going to be anybody who can fill the shoes of what he's doing. Never. And I'm not just, you know, because half the time people that run him down, they don't even read the observer. They, they look at his tweets or they might read what he posts on his website and that's it. And, and, and they don't even read it and they don't understand what he does every week. The guy has probably written more words than any human being who has ever lived. And I'm not even exaggerating. You know, if you read it every week, you'll, you'll understand the value of what he does. And I mean, really read it. You'll get the value of what he does. Like half the time people will say the dumbest things like with Cody jumping to, to WWE you'll get these just dummies <laughs> and they'll come on, on social media and they'll go, well, Meltzer clearly has no idea what's going on because you know, this happened out of nowhere. There was no sign of this. And all of a sudden Cody leaves AEW and, 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 and Meltzer had no idea. And I'm going, if you read the observer, you would have known that Cody was probably going to leave AEW about six months ago. If you actually read it, because he did know what was going on. He was reporting on what was happening. Was it always perfect? No. But he had his sources. And if you read it, you would actually have known ahead of time. The fact that you had no clue this was going to happen is proof that you're not really following what's going on. So, so, so he's valuable is what I'm saying. He's not perfect. We need more of him, not less. More people like him. I don't disagree with his value. Like he's as a historian, Dave is, you know, he's the guy, you know, Brian is okay. You know, he's got a couple of books and stuff like he's the, Brian's got some good books too. Like I actually have one. I have the death of WCW on the shelf. You know, it's a, one of my favorites. I can't lie about that. I think Dave's Twitter game is awful. Like he's, he just, he, he needs to, you know, sometimes he, need, he needs to be on it less is yeah, the problem. That, I yeah. think, <laughs> But no, I, I agree with you there. And, and I think like what you're saying is that what I was saying before ties into that because it's like, I think there's a lot of people, fans, who only know him from Twitter. Yes. And that's where, that's like, it's like the people that only know Jim Cornette from his podcast, you know. Yeah. They, those people equally have no idea what they're talking about because, because he's not just this angry guy on a podcast making fun of Kenny Omega. Like if you knew who he was, same thing with Meltzer. You're right. There's times where there's look, there's times where many of us don't do we don't do ourselves any favors by being on Twitter too much. And I have to tell you, I have a Herculean level of self-control on a daily basis <laughs> with the things that I could say and the responses I could make. Uh, not everybody has the same kind of self-control that I have. Like I had a thing happen recently. You know, I, I very carefully control myself. I had a thing happen recently where I made a very innocuous comment about somebody that got completely blown out of proportion by uh, a wrestling journalist on Twitter who tried to shame me. And uh, in a very succinct way, I just said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> that, would, that was my response. I don't normally do that on Twitter. Right. Who, was but the, there, uh, who was the journalist? I don't really want to say. But All right. <laughs> <laughs> but people can probably find out if they're on Twitter. But but he blocked me and um, oh, serial blocker. Okay, you know it was yeah. just I don't really do that. But uh, yeah. there are people who they get really wrapped up in things and they lose it sometimes. And I think they could sometimes be better served by 
pulling back a little bit and not there's times where you don't have to engage. If mm-hmm. I look and I see this guy has four followers who gives a shit what he's saying and what he has to, you know, I'm not going to get in. Why, why in the world would I play that game? If his avatar is like a character from anime, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to go down <laughs> that road at all. It's not happening. You know, that's just danger. Will Robinson danger. So you, you have to know how to chart those waters. Absolutely. No question. Like you say, especially in this day and age where it seems that Twitter is almost everything to some people, you know, it is a, a huge platform. Um, See, I mean, woke and, woke and broke at the same time, isn't woke, it? But I mean, <laughs> we, we live in this weird time. It's crazy to think about, you know, we take it for granted where just everyday people can just interact with huge, important people just on a random casual basis. Uh, yeah. People People who grew up in this world, I guess you don't really understand how weird this is. It's really weird. Like I couldn't, when I was a little kid, I couldn't be like, Walter Cronkite, you're an asshole. You have no idea what the hell you're talking about. You know, (laughs) Walter Cronkite, who was like the most respected journalist in America for decades, you know, like he would have no idea I ever existed and nor millions of other people. But now we live in this weird time where, where, where people can just be like, you're a jerk. And then it's up to this celebrity to decide, like, do I respond to this or not? (laughs) And the smarter ones understand 99.9% of the time, just pretend that it didn't happen and you'll be fine, you know? Uh, So so just for for reference, uh, Walter Cronkite, let's let's say he's the the British equivalent of, sorry, the British equivalent of Walter Cronkite is probably Sir Trevor McDonald. Like, we're not going to get on Twitter and start abusing Sir Trevor about anything like that, you know, like. You know, his wrestling right. opinions don't matter to us, do they? Right. I, I yeah. I, I was trying. I'm sorry. I was trying to think of a good British equivalent, and I just couldn't. I was trying to think right. of some. I'm sure there's many, many. Here's Morgan. You could have said, oh, but uh, yeah. but but he deserves it though. There's a, there's a, <laughs> please do not put Piers Morgan in the same category as Walter, Walter Cronkite. Cronkite. I, I tell you, the only way I know Walter Cronkite is from an exhibit song. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, so Walter Walter Cronkite was the ultimate like respected voice of American television news from probably the 60s through the 80s. Like he was at a time when there were three channels on TV. Yeah. There was no internet. Like he was when he said it on the news, you believed it and you trusted it. In fact, to the point where uh he came on TV. He, he went to Vietnam to cover the war in Vietnam. He came back to America on a, on a news broadcast with tens of millions of people watching back then. He said, in, in this reporter's opinion, I do not believe the United States can win this war. And a lot of people say that's when America's uh, attitude towards the war shifted, where they were just like, why are we fighting this war? A lot of it had to do with because they trusted him that much. You know, we don't have people like that anymore. But what I'm trying to say, though, is like there was no way in those days, if I'm sitting at home in my living room, in, yeah. my, un- in my underwear, drinking a beer and I'm going, <laughs> Walter Cronkite, you're full of shit. We're going to win this war. You don't know what you're talking about. You commie left wing liberal idiot. Right. It, that would end in my living room. Right? Sure. The end. We don't, you know, now that guy 
goes on his computer and potentially limitless amounts of people can hear him say that and react to that. So it's such a different media landscape now where to tie it back to wrestling and Meltzer, you can have people now, unfortunately, who are valuable people, important, um, who can harm the way they're viewed and harm their legacies and reputation sometimes by the way in which they engage with these things in ways that maybe they just shouldn't, you know, and, 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 and it affects the way people look at them because they get to see them. People get to see them in a much more unguarded way. Like, like there's, there's far less image control nowadays than there was back then. I'm sure if Walter Cronkite was on Twitter, if Twitter existed back then, I don't know if we'd look at him the same way now because he'd probably be like, fuck you. (laughs) We're going to lose this war, you stupid idiot. So why don't you shut up and stop tweeting at me from your living room, you idiot. I was there. I was in Vietnam. You know, we wouldn't have had all that nonsense. Whereas back then, it was much more cut and dried. Do you think, on uh, probably the last point on this Twitter stuff, but like, do you think sometimes the ambiguity of Meltzer's tweet, sometimes he does it, to get the engagement. Um, you know what I think happens a lot with him? I don't think it's him being like the smart ass that he's trying to troll people. I think it's because he is still trying to do the job that he's always done as like this, this like arbiter and this wrestling uh, pundit that would reveal information to, to the fans in a time when that type of stuff is looked at very differently. Like, for example, and this happens with Brian Alvarez too, who's like his, you know, his, his right-hand man. They'll tweet, he'll, Meltzer will tweet something like, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. He'll tweet, he'll just tweet something out of the blue, like Vince McMahon is, to, oh, like, like out of the blue, like people in, w, in AEW are saying that Bret Hart is under a contract and he can't, he can't do anything with them because of this. Yeah. He's reporting that as a journalist in the same way he might put it in the Observer, you know, or on his website in years past. And now it's a breaking item. He throws it on Twitter. But because Twitter is Twitter, people see that and they go like, what are you trying to say, Dave Meltzer? What does that mean? Are, yeah. you, are you anti-Bret Hart? Oh, uh, are, are, are you trying to trash WWE? Are, 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 why would you say that now? And they read too much into it. They think that he's tweeting in the same way that other people will tweet because they're trying to create a furor. When all he's doing is saying, I just got off the phone with this guy that just told me that Bret Hart is under contract. So I'm going to immediately tweet it out because I'm Dave Meltzer. And, and, and people just take it the wrong way. I, I think they, they think there's an agenda when there really isn't an agenda. It's just, uh, it's just business as usual for him. Yeah, because whatever he tweets out, people are just assuming that it's him just talking about because, stuff. Right, right. Sometimes it will yeah. come out, it will appear to just be this random non sequitur. Yeah. And people think, oh, it's Meltzer on a mountaintop uh, uh, giving his opinion on something out of the blue where it's really just he's just reporting on shit as it comes to him you know he's just reporting things uh and and then again i think people if you read the observer then you you understand it more because you will see that um 
he does it to everyone. But like if he's ripping things, he's ripping things, WWE things. He's ripping AEW things. He's 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 not you know, he's praising this. He's praising that. But the nuance doesn't come out unless you're willing to sit down and read all that tiny little print in the observer that comes out every week. If you're just looking at tweets. Yeah. It seems like totally out of context. Like, why is he saying that? What's, what's the hidden meaning there? And there isn't a hidden meaning. Is he closer to AEW than WWE? Well, I think that the issue, there's a couple of things. He was directly connected to the creation of AEW, not directly, but he was involved in that whole thing that happened with Cody and the young bucks and how he, he said that nobody could ever do a show, you know, you know, the story where, where he said like, no one could ever just out of the blue run a wrestling show promotion and draw people. And, and Cody was like, really, you know, challenge accepted. And he went and did it. And so I think there'll always be an, an, an affinity there that, you know, he understands that he played this weird indirect role in the creation of the company, but I don't, but you, but then you get people that are saying like they are, they're paying him and he's there as a, you know, he, he's trying to tear WWE down to help them. And I don't believe any of that for a second. I really don't. I think sometimes what, ha- what does happen is he has the things that he likes and the things that he doesn't like. And AEW right now is doing more of the things that he likes. And that's where personal bias comes in. Like I said, Anyone's going to have a personal bias. Vince, Dave Meltzer has his idea of what a great wrestling match is. That's very different from what Vince McMahon's idea of what a great wrestling match is. Vince McMahon, you know, you know what? That's what I meant when I said we need more people doing this that have different opinions and views. You know, Vince McMahon told me in an interview, and he mentioned Meltzer directly. He said, you know, people. He said to me, I don't like these star ratings for matches and the way that people like Dave Meltzer they will take a match out of context, out of the storyline, out of the show, and just look at it as an artifact and rate the match on a scale of like one to five or whatever it is. He says, I don't believe in doing that. Like the way I judge it, and this is Vince talking, the way I judge it, a match is only as valuable to me as it serves the purpose of the storyline and it moves the storyline along. So he brought up the example like, he would say, like, when, when people will look at an opening match with, with these cruiserweights and they're doing incredible things and they'll say, this was better than any other match on the show. Like, I don't see it that way because to me, the best match on the show is the match that the people paid the money to see, the match that they actually wanted to see. And, and so, so uh, you know, it, this could be a match they didn't even know was going to be on the show. So it's less valuable to me. So he brought up WrestleMania three as the classic example, because he said everybody always talks about Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage. They stole the show and that was the greatest match on the show. And it totally overshadowed the main event and Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And he would say, from my point of view, I don't understand how anyone can say that because that Randy and and Rick did a great job. They're incredible performers. They were good in their role as being a supporting match on the show. But that match is Andre the Giant. That show is Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan. That is the reason that that show happened. That's the reason anybody watched it. That was what drew the numbers. And when you watch it, uh, yeah, they're not as fast and they're not doing all the technical moves. But from a storyline point of view, everything that went into it, with the betrayal and the, 
you know, with Andre turning heel. And, and then now you've got the two hugest stars in the entire industry face to face. He goes, that's the best match on the show. Not because of what they did in the bell to bell, but because of what it was. So like, that's the Vince McMahon approach of, of rating a product. Meltzer's view is totally different. So of course, Meltzer probably prefers to watch AEW than WWE, but he's still covering the industry and he, he's still trying to uncover the truth about things and facts about things. And so I, I, I don't believe for a second that he's rooting for one side to fail and one side to succeed. I do not believe that at all. It's, it's funny because for all of, all of the talk of sports entertainment, Vince's way sounds a lot like the sporting pay-per-view model of, for instance, last night's Tyson Fury fight. You know, nobody was paying to watch the undercard. They were paying to watch Tyson Fury and Dillian White go at it. That was it. Like, it was the, the, yeah, that yeah. Was the it wasn't even a great fight. It was just a great uppercut. Like, that was it. Like, That's very true. remember that ahead of anything else that happened on that show. And, and, you know, and I, and I watch a lot of boxing because my family was in boxing for, for years fight, not me. I didn't, I can't, the only thing I ever fought was hunger, but I had people in my family who were boxers and trainers and things. And it's very true about boxing. A lot of times, like I, I, I went to see, uh, I saw Deontay Wilder um, at the Barclays center. It was what in wrestling we would call a squash match. I forget uh, Dominic Briazale. He fought him. It was where he knocked him out in two minutes of the first round. If you ever saw this, I mean, he killed him. Yeah, I'll see. And 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 it was one of those things where I got there at the beginning of the for the first undercard match, and I got to see about six or seven good fights leading up to it. Half the audience didn't even get there until the main event went on, and they were pissed, you know. Um, because of what happened. I thought it was amazing. It was great theater. This guy got knocked out in two minutes. Oh my God, that's crazy. My son's there with me and it's this one punch just like, boom! And my son is losing his mind. But if you just came there to see that, well, you got screwed. But but you see, but that's the attitude of boxing. And you're right, that is the Vince McMahon attitude of wrestling that, yeah, some of those undercard matches were great. They were amazing. The The... The, the the technique and they went 12 rounds and blah 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 nobody came there to see that when they were in their seats they happened to be there and they happened to get a good show but that's not what you build your promotion around you know that's his view like you, you know you you what's important to me is what draws it's what where the drama comes from rather than just taking this match that's technically brilliant but has nothing to do with anything um I'm not going to say it's bad, and even he wouldn't say that. It, it, it's great, but it's not the most important thing on that show. And that's where his view differs from a lot of, like, the kind of work rate people and the hardcore, like, this match is 12 and a half stars, like, those kind of people. Um, his, his view is very different. And to be honest with you, I kind of lean more towards Vince's way of looking at things, especially the older I get, uh, you know, more perspective I get on the business. It's like I, I always say um, I always have to separate what I personally enjoy from what's the best for business. Like a lot of times there's things that I go, this is horrible. I don't understand. But if everyone wants to see this, keep doing it. You know what I mean? Like I have to separate myself from that. Like, like if, if this is what's working, do it, you know, so because I look at it more from an inside the industry 
view than than just as a pure fan. Do you, do you find that since you've been in the business and you, and you know about it, do you think it's it's harder for you to kind of suspend your disbelief when you're watching wrestling and 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 just kind of watch it as pure entertainment? Or do you find yourself, you know, slipping well, the, into the? That was always my favorite thing about being a fan was suspending the disbelief. Like I never thought that the business was a shoot, even as a child. I understood. Yeah. Um, I understood it was it was entertainment and show business, but. I liked to suspend disbelief in the moment. And I, I always remember when you'd go to shows back then, a lot of the audience was doing that. And I don't think they do that anymore. People no. would get people would get lost in the moment. People where if you got them away from the arena two days later in a room, they would be like, yeah, I know it's, you know, whatever. But but in that moment, they were they were in it, like believing it for that three hours, believing it can't do that anymore i can't do that anymore most of the time and the problem is not me the problem is wrestling the problem is the way it's presented it's right in your face this is not real it's right it's right there and they um you know when kayfabe kind of went out the window and i don't believe it ever 100 percent went out the window because you know if people really thought that vince mcmahon was holding down daniel bryan well, then that gives me a lot of hope that kayfabe isn't truly dead. <laughs> it's not truly dead. But um, they make it a lot harder to suspend disbelief now because um, they used to care a lot more about trying to uh, make something realistic, if even realistic within the confines of wrestling. Like no nobody who knows what a shoot fight really looks like is going to mistake a wrestling match for a shoot fight, even a great scientific technical match, you're going to know these guys are, are working together. But within the confines of wrestling, there is a way to create drama if you believe in what you're doing. And the way the pr product is a lot of the time makes it very hard to do that. I think one of the biggest turning points in wrestling, I've never really talked about this, was back in the day, the wrestlers were always nuts. You know, they were always crazy characters, always goofy and weird and, and, and strange, but you were willing to buy it because the overall package, like the promotion was presented as serious. The announcers were usually very serious. The authority figures were not characters. It was just a guy in a suit who ran, you know, so you got the, the impression you got was this is a sports league. This is a sporting event. It happens to be full of complete lunatics who are in the ring, but we're doing our best to control it and govern it and contain it. Whereas now it's like a complete circus where it's, you know, the authority figures are characters, their faces and heels. The, the referees are, are characters. They're, they're, they're selling the moves the wrestlers make and doing goofy things like that and, and, and ignoring the, you know, the rules yeah. such as they are. The announcers are even the, even the, the baby face and that are just complete characters. And you have, um, you know, when you have a, a situation where wrestlers can just make a match on the fly and they're not even creating the illusion that there's a governing body and a wrestler can't just be like, let's have a match right now. Okay. Get in the ring. Where's the referee. Like they would never do stuff like that because can you do that in boxing? Can a boxer just run in the ring and go, I want you in the ring right now. Of course not. You know, 
And, and if you watch old wrestling, you would see scenarios like that where a wrestler would be like, I want this. I want to have this match. And they would have the guy come out and go like, you don't make the matches here. We do. That's and right. You, and you have to go through the proper channels. We've got to sign a contract. Proper, right. We're going to we're, we're yeah. make this match. Yeah. And, and those kind of things, they made you believe that this was a sport or at least a sports-like presentation the announcers wouldn't insult your intelligence like even when something crazy was happening in the ring the announcers wouldn't go along with it the announcers would let you know that they thought this was ridiculous too you know they were trying to make sense out of it like gordon Soley here in the u.s was great at doing that yeah of like i am a normal man at ringside calling this lunacy but i'm not selling you a line of bs because i have my own credibility that i'm trying to preserve so like that stuff has gone out the window in wrestling where like everything is just part of the show now and so when you do that you can't really you can't really believe in anything you know like it, you know look it, everything has a place and like when people when cornet will 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 go off on some of these really ridiculous things i think that that's the difference those things always went on in wrestling but there was always the sense that the promotion was not a part of it. Like the promotion was a real wrestling promotion that was trying to create order. They weren't contributing to the chaos. And that's kind of what we have now, you know, with, with referees, like the, the young bucks have their pet referee that they have for every match who doesn't real, who lets them just do whatever they feel like doing. And, and it takes me out of their matches because there's no structure. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, it's like there's no rules anymore. It's like when you can throw a closed fist, right? That removes so many possibilities of like getting heat. You have a heel, like hitting the face when the referee isn't looking, you get heat. Or you get the baby face who's like, he's losing it. Like he doesn't want to throw that punch. He doesn't want to break the rules, but he's getting madder and madder. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do it. And the crowd is just hit him, hit him, hit him, right? But when you have no rules and the guys are just punching each other in the face and the referee's just going, yes, very good, very good. Well, you lose so many opportunities to create tension and drama in a match, uh, to, to create an illusion of a sport with rules. All these things get, get thrown out the window um, when it's this anything goes attitude that wrestling has now. So that's one of my problems I have with it. This is an amazing uh, like little segue for us to just quickly mention our Marty Elias interview where Marty just completely almost says what you're saying here, like, you know, how too much of the refereeing now is, you know, broken. Yeah, because people forget. Look, I'm not trying to say that wrestling has real rules. We all know it doesn't. It's a show that, you know, the rules are part of the illusion but you have to pretend that they exist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, otherwise uh, it's just a mess. Like it also makes the referees look bad. I'm that's, that is, that's one of my issues with AEW. I do feel that WWE gives the referees a little more backbone where it's like, you're supposed to be the authority in there. The wrestlers listen to you, but even they're not gr great about it. Like if you watch old wrestling, that referee is the fucking boss in there and they mm -hmm. know it. If you watch guys like Dick Kroll, Dick Worley, we had uh, uh, Red Shoes Dugan in California, Tommy Young in the NWA, right? He'd get like Flair would get in his face and he would get right back in his face and push him right back. Like these guys knew 
at least in the storyline of the match, like this guy is the boss and we, we got to listen to him and to what he says. And now you get this thing where half the time, I don't know if you noticed this, and this shows you how robotic a lot of the wrestling is the ref. This happens in WWE, especially the referee is screaming in their faces, you know, pointing and yelling. And the wrestlers are not even acknowledging that. Yeah. He's there. Yeah. They're not, they're not turning and jaw jacking and get out of my way. Oh, shut up. There's none of that. It's like the guy's not even there and it exposes everything. Like the referee is a complete joke. You know, the referee, I love FTR because they try to do these old school spots and half the time the referee doesn't even know what they're even trying to do. That's if right. You they're not that. selling it. Right. right. Yeah. You notice in their matches, they yeah. try to do these cute things where you distract the referee. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to try to tag you when I'm not really in the corner and I'm going to double team you. But because the referee is so clueless, they're doing it for nothing. The referee just lets them do anything and there's no spot because the referee's not giving anything back, you know? I mean, like you say, we had Marty Elias on and we spoke to him for quite a long time. And he, we, we had some great conversations with him about this kind of stuff, how there is a way and, and it's not just AEW specific, like you say, in WWE, the, the referees are kind of seen as a third wheel, but at least there's a little bit more legitimacy, I think, from that side. With with AEW, it's a bit kind of more Wild West um, with right. Aubrey and, and stuff like that that's going on. But um, yeah, it, it's, it can be, legitimacy can be brought back um, using the referees as that, central point of authority saying right and you know that's why it annoys me partly sorry to go on but about aew great topic you know the standings that they have the 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 rankings because on one on one side of it aew is like the wild west when it comes to match structure and it doesn't really seem that sport like and then they they go right to the other end of the scale and have no no but these are the win-loss rankings so a win and a loss really does matter kind of thing I think a lot of that came out of the conflicts that were going on that we probably have no idea about between like Cody. I think the sports like stuff was coming more from Cody. Right. And then you had the Kenny Omega camp of why can't I wrestle a 10 year old girl, you know, and things like that. Right. Um, you know, and I think Tony Khan wound up leaning towards the Omega side, but you still have the remnants of the Cody influence still going on. But um, you know, the, w- Another thing with the refs, like uh, the AEW refs, if you notice, like they, I don't, they have no purpose to be there. Like they don't, all they do is count, especially in tag team matches. There's no tags don't matter. Double team as long as you want. You can tag from anywhere. You could be standing outside on the floor and you can tag into a match. Yeah. It's, it's madness. And, what I hate, what drives me so nuts is the referees, all they do is just look concerned, right? They're very concerned and they're begging, like, please don't, don't do that. Come on. And that even happens sometimes in WWE. Like, like guy, it, it's almost like an ineffective parent Yeah. where they're just like, guys, please come on guys, please. Whereas a referee should be like, get down now. One, two, I will throw your ass out like mm-hmm. right in your face, like, get up, get in this ring. 
you know, like Earl Hebner, right? I mean, yeah, God, yeah. It's like, don't mess with me, you know? And they knew it and they got, and, and I don't care if he was this big, they still respected that man. And, and they also, the referees were like, you're supposed to be this hardened arbiter. You've seen it all, right? You're no nonsense. There's nothing I hate worse than a referee who facially sells the moves. Like, are you that shocked that a guy did a suplex? You're a referee. <laughs> I was going to say, you'd never see Tommy Young jump for a superplex. <laughs> right. They'll do, uh, they'll do like, you know, oh my God. <laughs> but like, you're the ref. Come on, man. Like, yeah, I know. He, it looks really rough, but that's your job, right? The, the, a, a really good ref. It's just, and I'm not saying you can't, you know, contribute to the match because guys like sure. Tommy Young did and Earl Hebner and they were part of the match, but you're supposed, you've seen it all. Like this doesn't bother you or upset you. Like you, you, you're the referee, you know, you're supposed to be calm, cool and collected, you know, and, and not be like squeamish. They're squeamish in the ring. It's a sh and they're being told to do that. Clearly. It's just a strange thing. And it's one of those things where to tie it back to what we were saying, like, the job of the referee can go so far towards selling this, the product and, and ruining the product. It's, yeah. it's such an important job. I mean, I, I always remember how, and it was, it, it always seemed to be Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan at that specific time would always say, oh, you don't touch a referee. He's going to get a fine for that. He's going to get a fine for that. You know, and there was always this kind of like, you know, all right, obviously, like you say, we suspend our disbelief and we know that it's kind of thingy, but chucking around referees, ref bumps, you know, and that kind of thing never really used to happen. It, you know, I remember Monsoon, you mentioned Monsoon, like I was watching an old uh, MSG, oh, I've seen this a couple of times, but where, where Monsoon's the announcer and Monsoon would like, if a referee did something wrong, he would pick it out. And you knew that that guy was going to get chewed out in the locker room later because you could just tell he was legitimately pissed. Like, why is this referee doing that? And yeah. I remember one time Monsoon got pissed because the referee left the ring before the wrestlers. Now, think about that. We wouldn't even think about that today. The referees like run away from the ring so the guy could talk for like 25 minutes. But the fact that you're the referee. You're supposed to be the first one in the ring for the match and the last one to leave. When the match ends, you raise the guy's hand, the loser leaves, then the winner leaves, and then you, the ref, you leave. You don't just walk out of the ring and just leave the guys in the ring. Like, that was such a taboo thing that he called it out on TV. Nowadays, nobody would even notice that happened. You yeah. Know? Insane. That's crazy. You know, yeah. it is. We, did, we did notice it more when we went to the next wrestling show after we spoke to Marty. Like we were sort of like you kept your eye on the ref. It was, and yeah, we did, yeah. We did pick up on a few things here and there. Like it was, it was a really like interesting. I wrote way a, to look at it. I wrote a column about this AEW referee problem for PWI a few months ago, and what I said, and I'll say it again here. Like I can't really blame the refs themselves. I know they're being told to do this. They're being trained a certain way. They're being told this is what we want you to do and not do. So I have, to, I blame the people that are telling them that mm -hmm. because they're just doing their job. They're doing what they're told, just like the guys back then were doing what they were told to do, you know, 
It's just somebody needs to understand what the referee's role is supposed to be. That's all. It's it's funny because we do have this kind of the, the we we spoke about the kind of gang type nature of fans now where they're kind of you know pro WWE or anti AEW or pro AEW and anti WWE and I think it is kind of you can see it in the products as well because it did seem like AEW were kind of trying to be everything WWE wasn't, you know, and giving that kind of niche audience. And this is why I think the Wrestling Observer gets bundled in with AEW because AEW does seem to be pandering more to that specific type audience to say, look, we're not going to fucking insult your intelligence. We know that, you know, this is fake. We've got the bucks who are going to tell you in their Twitter handles, how much they're exposing the business and that, you know, that they're exposing it and you think that's great. So I think that's why this kind of, duality in the business is being seen because AEW is kind of pandering more to that side of it and WWE is trying a little bit harder to kind of and not that kayfabe is is still here but they're kind of trying it but then you listen to Stone Cold Steve Austin and they're still talking about stuff on the fucking Broken Skull Ranch that completely kills kayfabe so but that's not during the show so that's you know it's not happening during the show WWE has in their presentation there's just more discipline that's one thing they have right there's a lot of discipline maybe too much some people might say but the discipline of like this is what you can do this is what you can't do or say don't do it this way don't do it that way and you don't see that in aew it's much more like it's chaotic which also has somewhat of an appeal because it's entertaining. The sure. chaos is entertaining. Yeah. But sometimes, but sometimes it can be frustrating too. Like, like that, that part of it can be frustrating. And I think the difference, you know, Mel- AEW is catering to what the kind of things Meltzer likes Absolutely. and observer and observer readers like, but it's the kind of things Meltzer has been championing for years before AEW even existed. It's like people make fun of how much he loves Japan, right? If so, therefore it makes it seem like he's in bed with them, but it's it's actually the opposite thing where they're going, we're going to make a product that Meltzer would like. You know, I like, agree. A hundred percent. like yeah. WWE is not doing that. We're going to do that. We're going to make the kind of thing that these like more hardcore fans will be into. And so it creates that. But like this, this tribal thing, you know, I want to say, because it's like what I was saying before, how back then we were more just like wrestling fans. You know, there was a thing of, you know, you, you believed your wrestling maybe was better or you liked a certain kind. And you would say, well, WWF is way better than the NWA like, or vice versa, or this wrestling is way better. But the difference was you weren't rooting for one company or another to beat the other company. Like the only people who cared about that kind of shit were the people in the business, the people in the companies cared. But if you're a fan, you might say, yeah, I like this wrestling better than that wrestling. But like, I I'm not rooting for this one to win and beat that one. Like, I don't care about that. Like I'm probably going to watch everything. And if I don't like it, I'm not going to watch it, but I'm not like rooting for companies. That's weird. Rooting for a company is weird to me. 
It, it, I mean, the biggest thing in wrestling happened when people thought that two companies were, were kind of coming together, whether it was a conflict or not. You know, when the NWO came in, it was like, you know, both co companies in the same company kind of thing. It was that illusion that there was some conflict, but this is cool, you know? It's, um... And then that might be the beginning, actually, of that kind of thinking of like, um, it was a very meta storyline, especially at the time. It was something, now it's sort of like, you don't think twice because it's like so much of wrestling was influenced by that era. Yeah. But at the time, this idea of like, I remember a time when they wouldn't even call it a company on the air. It was, you know, they never, they never would use the word company yeah. because they wanted you to think it was like a sports league or like a governing body or, you know, some kind of sports entity, they would never call it a company. So the fact that they were acknowledging this is a corporate company, this is an entertainment entity. We're being invaded by a different company that's trying to take us over. Like that was such an outside the box idea because all the angles were just about personal issues between the wrestlers. It was nothing about like, oh, wow, now all the wrestlers have to join forces to fight against this outside force. Like that was taking the reality of the business that only insiders cared about. And it was now creating a storyline that fans would care about. And, you know, that might be the beginning of this idea of tribalism, of people taking yeah. that concept and just blowing it way out of proportion. I mean, that what, is a fascinating way to put it. It's like, great, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, like I mean, I a... still do enjoy the memes of a picture of Vince McMahon with the reddest face looking angry. And it says, Vince McMahon, when Cody Rhodes mentioned belts and wrestlers. And it's just, <laughs> you know, like Vince's red face. I still enjoy the memes. Um, you know, so moving on from that, though. So you've got your book coming out. It's already out. Uh, April 2022, it came out. Uh, the book yes. about the original Sheik. Um, so where can people get it? Uh, talk about your podcast a little bit more and talk about maybe some stuff that you, you're looking to do in the future. Sure. So the, the book, there was a little bit of a distribution issue with the book. I want to point that out because people were getting frustrated and I understand that. There was not an expectation of the kind of demand that there would be for this book. And Amazon and other online outlets, I don't think they ordered enough copies right away. So a lot of the pre-orders didn't even get fully fulfilled. And Amazon, as we speak right now, is out of stock. Now, I've been told... Now, let me just say, if you want to get a Kindle copy or a, a digital PDF copy, they're never going to sell out. You can get those from Amazon. You can get it from barnesandnoble.com or any other online outlet. The issues are with the physical copies of the book. If that's what you're looking for, you will either have to, you'll have to maybe wait a couple of weeks till it's Amazon not, not here gets in the there. UK. You can get it tomorrow on Prime if you really want it. <laughs> on the, on the, can you really? You yeah. can, yeah. I feel if you can see that. Yeah, you can get it. It's not, it's oh in stock. Oh my God. The Americans are going to hate me even more now. Wait, now, now, wait. Scroll down a little bit there because make sure it doesn't say temporarily out of stock. What does it say? Oh, this we're, we're still in the pre-order phase. Okay. That's my That's bad. Weird. No, it's, it's not. It's not released in the UK until June. Ah, God! I hope that doesn't happen here too. Well, well apologies. Yeah, um, sorry, UK fans. You have to wait a little bit longer. Is it? Po I don't know how this works. Is it possible for people in the UK to kind of cheat by ordering from? Oh, it's the, always from a way. The, yeah. 
from the American Amazon. Like is VPNs, that, is that... baby. There might be VPNs that people can use and get it. But so is, so in like, any yeah. yeah. So I guess yeah, people in the UK will have to wait. But in a way, that could be a good thing because I'm hoping by that point they get these supply chain is, issues straightened out. Because uh, in the meantime, though, I will say that. Um, I well, you can do two things. Even in the UK, I think you could do this now. Uh, ECW Press, you can order directly from them. If you, of course, there's shipping with that, where because they're a Canadian company, so it's probably going to cost about twenty bucks or so just the shipping alone. Now, I also have a limited supply of my own copies that I'm signing and selling, and I have sold to people in the UK. Um, it, it, again, it costs a little bit more cause I'm shipping from the U S and it has to cover the shipping. Cause if I paid for all the shipping, I'd go broke, sure. but, uh, but people can reach out to me if they want to order, uh, print, uh, signed printed copies from me. Uh, my email is Brian R Solomon at yahoo.com. If people want to reach out, um, I, I do have them also, um, the pot. So the podcast too, I've been talking a lot about it on there. It's shut up and wrestle. And there's a website, suawpod.com. That's the shut up and wrestle website. Um, but you can get it on Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I think is probably where most people find it. Um, it it's, it's everywhere. I just started up a Facebook group for the podcast. So if you look up uh, shut up and wrestle with Brian R. Solomon on on Facebook. You'll find the Facebook group. Uh, we'll we'll uh, if you smash want to... a link in there. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah. Uh, make sure there you the go. There. there you go. And so you know, I'm up to episode 13 now. Coming up, I'm very excited about the show. It's been great response. Great response. Uh, one one last question. It seems like you're pretty uh, you're pretty quite you're quite close with uh, Brian Larson, Camp Cornet, and you're obviously a you've spoken quite nicely and you know friendly about dave mills so could you be the intermediary that gets them to shake hands oh i would love to i really would i would love to be i don't know if you guys would get the reference but in the u.s we had a comedy team called martin and lewis back in the day it was dean martin and jerry lewis yeah back in the and they were great and then they broke up and hated each other for years and frank sinatra was friends with both of them and he got them back together in a surprise on the air on live television. He, he surprised them. And it's a very famous thing here in America. I would love to be the Frank Sinatra to uh, to Meltzer and Cornette's Martin and Lewis in a second. I don't think I have that power, unfortunately, because this is the thing. I'm not the only one here. I love and respect both of those guys. And I think they're both very valuable. Yeah. And it makes me sad that they don't get along. I, I even said. To Brian once, I think I said it, where it's like being a kid and watching your mommy and daddy argue. <laughs> and you're so <laughs> sad. So please don't fight, mommy and daddy. Please don't fight. I, I would, because they used to be friends. It's it's too bad, you know? They're more similar than they want to fucking admit as well, I think. But like Dave Meltzer and Cornetta, they both love wrestling to the nth degree. They're both historians of the business. They've both, you know, been around for a long, long time. And yeah, I mean, you know, man, if we could bring those two together, if you could do that, that would be incredible. They both like what they like. That's the thing. And I think, you know, Meltzer, I think, is try is maybe trying more to to kind of change and 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 move along with new things uh 
whereas Cornette, I think, is trying to be more critical and critique things and, and point out how the way things were done, you know, maybe could be learned from a little bit more than, they, than it is being today. Yeah. And those are two very different philosophies. Like, yeah, they both love old school wrestling, but they have but they do have very different philosophies, especially when it comes to modern wrestling. And it's very hard to reconcile. It's just going to have to be a point. The only way it would ever happen is if they both just agreed to disagree. They're not going to change each other's mind. They just have to say, you know what? You think very differently about this than I do. And I don't care. You just keep thinking that way. And and we'll, we'll, we'll leave it aside. That's the only way it'll ever happen. And then they can both walk off into the sunset and go to Dairy Queen and, uh, and be happy. That would be amazing. What a, they, they would get a great reality show. Could you imagine? Oh, shit, man. Dave and Jim. Dave <laughs> Uncle, and Jim. Uncle Dave and Jim. <laughs> get a great reaction a, at, a live, at a live wrestling show just coming out and shaking hands. I mean, the, there's a much better chance of that than Jim, like making friends with Vince Russo. That's for sure. I mean, I could actually boy. see Meltzer and because I think because the thing, the, the difference there is I think that that deep down uh, they both still respect each other. Sure. Uh, Dave Meltzer and Jim Cornette. I don't believe that's the case with Jim Cornette and Vince Russo at all. Uh, but but Jim and Dave do. And uh, it's just a matter of putting things aside. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I would I would love to see it happen. Um, yeah. On live TV. That would be even better. <laughs> Man, I would love to see. I will. I would love to see Jim in AEW. Can you imagine? I mean, God, I can't be the only one to think that. I've- I mean. Yeah, I've said I, that on the show. I, I think if they hired Jim rough, Cornette, yeah. he would be able to, as long as they could turn around and say, look, Jim, fuck off every now and again. Just leave us to this. But right. if, they, if they were able to just take some of the stuff on board, I mean, we want AEW to be successful. We've said this. We, we don't want them to fail. Like, we 100% don't want them to fail. I mean, I, I buy their merchandise. I mean, MJF, I think, is someone that could be absolutely huge in the future. Um, you know, I, I, if they could, yeah, if Jim Cornette could work in some relationship with them, because AEW's got some great legends that behind the scenes, they've got Double A, they've got, you know, the the uh, Jake the Snake Robertses, they've got the, the people, the old school guys, but it just seems like their, their um, influence may be uh, limited. What do you think? I think I also think that Tony Khan is a big fan of Jim Cornette. I really do think that. I think that he listens to the show. I I I firmly have always believed that, and I think that he actually probably takes notes and and sure. and and certain ideas and things because it, he's he's a very valuable uh, insight. I I understand he rubs some people the wrong way and. You know, being from New York, I, I can I can sympathize how sometimes you can rub people the wrong way, and it doesn't take away from your value, though. That's the thing. I, I would love to see him over there. I, I don't, you know, he's just not motivated because he he can afford not to do any of these things. You know, yeah. it would be it would be awesome. I think, I mean, this isn't really a huge stretch, but I think the reason Dan Lambert exists is it's sort of this clumsy and not totally successful way of them trying to replicate Jim Cornette and AEW. I think, I mean, you can almost imagine Cornette just being dropped in place of Dan Lambert in almost any segment that he's in and just probably doing it like a thousand times better too. 
I'd agree. Yeah, I, I think uh, whilst whilst Lambert has some value, I think it, it can be quite sloppy and clumsy at times. And it is a, it's almost yeah, it's almost like you you've picked a poor substitution for Jim, and just said yeah, let's let's try, let's see if we yeah, can I mean, get God. some some of that gym heat but it's the first time he got in the ring lambert and he's talking about you know modern wrestling and then he's yeah. championship wrestling from florida and jack briscoe and dory funk jr the first thing i thought of these, these this could be taken right out of jim Cornette's mouth and put yeah. into someone else's mouth you know i mean jim Cornette has been a lot more uh, receptive to AEW recently though he has accepted that things have been improving in certain areas um, he some, sometimes still does lose his shit over certain stuff, um, which is, is that's just Cornette. Um, but right. yeah, he's warming it up is. to him. Yeah. I, I think, he, you know, I, I think he's just being honest. Hmm. And it, it, again, he's another part of person. There's no axe to grind, there's no agenda. He just honestly doesn't like most of the things he sees them doing. And when he sees something he really likes, he says it. You know, he's not. He's not like trying to bury them or anything. He's just giving his honest opinion in his own way that he does it. And when he sees something he likes, he's he's not going to be afraid to say it. He's not going to begrudge them. You know, he praised that Young Bucks and FTR match. I mean, a Young Bucks match. And he's raving about it yeah. <laughs> because he genuinely enjoyed it. That's all. It's one man's opinion. Yeah. I don't know, I'm not sure if you'll ever get on with Miro, but that's... Uh... And that's probably another story in itself. Oh, Miro, did you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, honestly, I didn't think anybody, anybody would say that, Mir well, Miro's invisible now. I don't know what happened, but but he was um, compared to what they were doing, to what they originally were doing when he came in, I thought was a huge improvement where he went from being the video game guy <laughs> for no reason to being to being like a, a monster. I loved all the stuff with the uh, you know God's champion or whatever he was Redeemer, calling himself. Yeah, that was the Redeemer, uh, yeah. the yeah, very oh, that was he was one of the best things they they had going. Honestly, I don't know. Did he get hurt or something? Did I miss something? Maybe I'm I, out. Of I the thought league. he got hurt in a match with possibly Danielson. Okay, because he's yeah, been I think, I think nowhere. It looked like he got hurt because the finish like in that match just was a bit bit off to me. Like just from what I was watching, but. And then, yeah, we haven't really seen him since. And I have a feeling when he comes back, it'll be with his wife because they were clearly building towards that. I mean, yeah. they kept mentioning, you know, her as an unnamed, you know, character. Basically, you can you feel like they're probably going to try to replicate the, the Miro and Lana thing a little bit or whatever they're going to call her. You know, I mean, why not, man? If it ain't broke, yes, don't yes, fix yes, it. it. Yeah, 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 no. Did it did work? WWE never should have. Man, I mean, they talking about dropping the ball. I mean, they they all had something special with him, mm. and they turned him into a goofball. I mean, not that there is no room for comedy in wrestling. There is, there, there certainly is, but there's certain things that shouldn't be comedy. You know, you you take somebody who has a lot of value as a monster heel, and then you make him in a goofball, and that's probably not a good idea. Man, there's there's always a space for comedy and wrestling. We, uh, I mean, yeah. we, we had Santi yeah. we had Sammy Santino Morella on the show. He was our first interview. Um, Anthony Corelli, and he's just you know 
fantastic character you know we we are, i mean even to a point i love dan and a lot of people don't like him or they rub him that you know he rubs them up the wrong way or whatever but i i mean i, I watch his youtube channel and stuff as well but yeah i mean dan Housen as a character i think has got a place definitely for comic relief in wrestling but has to be done right i think you know yeah it has to be done right that's the thing like i, I was very skeptical about orange cassidy when he first came in but I, I was won over for sure. Like, I think he's one of the best things they, they have going. And one of the, cause, cause at first I was thinking, well, what could they really do with this guy? So his whole gimmick is he doesn't care about anything. He doesn't put in an effort. All right. That's funny. A couple of times, but where do you go with that? You know? And so I think one of the smartest things they ever did, and I honestly don't know if he was doing this before AEW, I, I wasn't following that closely, but the whole idea that he eventually can be made to care like like he eventually loses his cool if you push him far enough and then he will kick your ass like that's great and that is what has given him legs in AEW and I think to me with Danhausen I don't think I've seen enough to be able to judge because I'm going like the same thing like what do you do with this guy after a few weeks like he comes out he's going to put a curse on somebody he says something funny, but like, where do you go with that? Who does he actually wrestle? Does he wrestle? Do you put a title on him? Like, what is the end game? So I need to see a little bit more before I decide with the Dan Housen thing. Yeah, well, this, is yeah. where, this is where me and Chris disagree. I'm not a fan of Dan, of Dan Housen gimmick character. I've called him the modern day Papa Shango more than once. Like, it's <laughs> like, yeah, it just well, Papa Shango good. was not was not played for laughs, even if people may Very have been true, laughing. Yeah. Correct. He was yeah. supposed to be serious and scary. Dan Housen is totally played for laughs, you know. Well, he had a broken leg. This is the thing. I don't think he's been fully cleared to oh, wrestle right. yet you know he he broke his leg in a, in an indie promotion and then he was going to a a and w and filling out application forms and stuff <laughs> like the whole journey of him getting into AEW has kind of been played out on twitter and on youtube so they've been building that up like in like you say the way people digest wrestling and the way people digest certain storylines is different now you know it's not all been done on tv a lot of it is been done through social media um, and stuff like that, you know, through Twitter and through right. YouTube channels, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Right. Like I love somebody I love right now is RJ City. I think he is a genius. And um, he was somebody that I've never seen him wrestle even for two seconds in my entire life. Never. I don't even, I don't know who he wrestled, where he wrestled. I, I see him on Twitter. He, he, he made before he even got hooked up with AEW, he was doing these short films and things that were hilarious and incredibly clever. And then Tony Khan noticed, and now he's doing these, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but he's doing these, like these little interviews with AEW wrestlers and things like trying to break them out of character. Like, right. Had, and it's hilarious. And I don't even know if he's ever going to wrestle ever, but like he's created this following on Twitter. It's this strange time where wrestlers can make something of themselves in these very unconventional, unorthodox ways, you know, like he got a job. He got a gig with AEW just from doing that. And he's never even I don't I mean, I don't even know if Tony Khan has ever seen him have a match. <laughs> That's so weird. But he's it's great. Strange. I want to try to get him on my podcast. Man, do it. I mean, that would be incre incredible. I mean, 
I, I think, Brian, we, we could probably talk to you for fucking hours about everything to do with wrestling, and we would absolutely love it. And, um, you know, maybe... Um, round two, maybe. Maybe round <laughs> two at some point when, when the book... So at the moment, uh, let me just refer to... So at the moment... of it's, June, I think it said in It's in, saying in June, UK. yeah. So the 2nd yeah, okay. of June, 2022, you'll be a, a, able to buy this in the UK on I Amazon. Think, I, I'm not sure if the Kindle... Have, option is available now it's not so we're saying june for kindle but no kindle you can buy now so yeah. you can buy there you the go. Kindle. yeah so uh it is called blood and fire the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic by our man brian r solomon and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on brian um you know we don't want to take up any more of your sunday afternoon um it's it's just you know it's great to talk to somebody who's got you've got such a, a depth of knowledge about wrestling. Um, you know you've worked in different areas of it, and so now you're kind of like a civvy. You're in just kind of normal life and just doing this just for the pure love of it, right? Yeah, and I've been more involved than I have in many years because you know with the pandemic and everything, I've been like sort of refocusing and having a lot more time on my hands. And it and it you know it. I've been more I've been more involved in wrestling stuff in the last two years, I would say, than I have been since I worked for WWE for sure. Wow. Incredible. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's been so a blast. Good. Yeah. So thank you guys. Thank you so much, Brian, for being with us. Um it's been a blast. Yeah. If if we ever get a chance to do round two, it would be fantastic. Also, if you're in the UK, you know, hit us up. We'll have some tea, we'll have some laughs, we'll keep we'll keep another sure. conversation going. I'd love to. I, I write for Inside the Ropes too. So speaking nice. of power slam, yeah, we've yeah. So we, had, we had a bit featured on Inside the Ropes as well. Um, yeah, a while so ago. Maybe so. if I come out and visit Kenny and Dante and those guys, maybe I'll come and say hi to you too. Brilliant. So check out Brian's podcast. It is uh, Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find that. Where can I get that on any podcast um, mm -hmm. platforms? Pretty much. Um, do you have a yep. YouTube clips or anything like that? Anything on YouTube? That is in the works. I haven't, uh, I'm planning to start a YouTube channel soon, but it's not there yet. I wanted to have like a nice bank of episodes before I started doing that. Sure. Like I didn't yeah. want to, I didn't want to just put all the work in and find out like four people were listening, you know? So sure. like, I'm probably going to start doing that very soon, but there is, like I mentioned before, I just started up a Facebook group uh, to sort of try to create kind of a community around the show. Cause I notice a lot of podcasts have that where people can talk about the show and talk about the guests and where I could be like, Hey, you know, you know, that match we were talking about on last week's episode, here it is. Here's a yeah. clip. You can watch it like that kind of thing. And that's brand new on Facebook. It's a group. It's just called shut up and wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Amazing link in the description guys. Absolutely. So again, Thank you to Brian R. Solomon. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. He's Go got loads of other books out there as well. So you can get it on Kindle at the minute. The paperback will be out. But, yeah, we just want to thank you again, Brian, for, for coming on. It's been incredible, man. It's been my pleasure. I could talk about this stuff forever, as you can see. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never get tired. So thank you. No worries, man. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, right. so much. Take care. Take care. And there you have it, That's ladies right. and gentlemen. Thank you so much to Brian for coming on. That was 
I mean, we were supposed to just be talking about the book. It turned into something completely different. It was an amazing chat with Brian there. He's a very knowledgeable man in, in terms of his wrestling. He was really into it. Again, we, we, we start the interview and then, then we say to him, you know, Jordan's like, yeah, so how long do you reckon you'll be on, you know? And he's like, well, how long do you usually do? And we're like, oh, you know, we aim to do like an hour or so. Two and a half hours later, <laughs> we're yeah, still, uh, like, talking. we have to like rein it in. Um, but again, like you're saying, man, he, he, you know, someone who loves the wrestling business has been around the business. Yes, yeah. You know, it's obvious, you know, he loves the business and, you know, he's got a, a, a lot of a lot to say about a lot. He, he, you know, he's got no access to grind with anyone. He's, you know, a fan of Meltzer, a fan of Cornette. You know, it, it's it is the refreshing. First fan, the first fan of Meltzer we've come across. Yeah. Um, in across any of our interviews. So um, that's a that's a I mean, the gold stars right there. So, that's, but, you know, it, also maybe he. You know, maybe I might start reading the fucking Observer, dude, because, you know, who knows what, because he, he's, you know, Brian's right. I don't read the Observer. No, we don't. So, we don't read yeah. it. All we see of what comes out of, you know, Dave Meltzer is what he puts on Twitter. That's all, that is all we see. So whether we, you know, we're taking it out of context or we're not, seeing the big picture who fucking knows man and maybe i will start reading the wrestling observer and then we'll see what happens maybe we will have a chat grapple and cheap pops newsletter what do you reckon <laughs> yeah eight stars all around fucking eight stars baby eight and a half <laughs> why not so yeah thank you so much for <laughs> sticking with us listening to us and brian you know definitely go and check out his book you know i can't wait to read it check out his book check out his podcast he's had people like um rvd on you know he's got links in the businessman you know he knows yeah. he was the guy that was editing the wwe magazine from about 2000 to 2007 you know fucking a man it, you know not a lightweight you know, not a lightweight by any stretch. Uh, absolutely not. So if you are listening, if you are listening, thank you so much for listening. If you're watching, you know what to do by now. If you haven't done it, why the fuck not? You can see who we're getting on the show. You can see exactly what's going on. Yeah. We are getting some of the, and they might not, you might say, oh, they're not the biggest names. There's some of the fucking best. A hundred percent, dude. The, I mean, you know, the, Brian is like a hidden gem. Absolutely. In the wrestling business, you know, you in all the all the other podcasts that are out there, you can you can you can pay to have your your, your superstars on, you know. But we are looking for those diamonds in the rough that is wrestling media, and we found one today. Um, we it was great to have him on, uh, Mr. Brian R. Solomon. Check out his book about the Sheik. He, check out the. I'm to be honest, mate. I'm probably going to get that. Um, trivia book as well it looks fucking interesting man if if you end up buying a book about trains it's the wrong brian just so yeah, you know right. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> but yeah um we will be back soon with something else we've got a few things working as you know we have had a little break or we have noticed that you know you know yeah we have, we have to take a break every now and again things change in personal lives but here we are we will see you soon enough with something 
similar, different, you know, maybe a Halloween Havoc 95. Who knows? That's what we're, you know, we could quite easily do that, you know, yeah. and this is how we work on this show. We've got no itinerary, really. You know, we, no. we talk about something like we've just spoke about with Brian there, we're talking about Sabu, we're talking about the original Sheik. Fuck it, man. Next thing we do, maybe that WCW. We do, we do need to very briefly make a quick shout out to, um, you know, my mother. She she turned up on my birthday with a TV VHS combo machine and a, you know, I can't reach it from here where I'm in the chair, but a uh, Hasbro Dusty Road. So an American dream. He yeah, got exactly. the American they dream Dusty Road. off the piece of kit. Trust me, baby. The dream. Uh, the dream Trust is me, home. Daddy. Is what, I, what I tagged <laughs> it as. Yeah, the dream is home. Um, the dream's home. So, yeah, my VHS collection is is back on the shelves so we are going to get right back into our retro shit that's uh, bro fucking a man i mean we we uh, between us we have got some real obscure videos as well man i've got some weird ones like i've got some really strange british wrestling videos that we could probably um do some reviews on that no fuck has probably ever seen um you know we, some we, old we'll, johnny saint matches or some shit you know bro well i've got like <laughs> Some weird ones that have got some very, like some very very strange characters and some very very cool matches and some very big stars in their very early days. So um, perfect. Yeah. So, thank you so much, guys, for listening for listening to us ramble on. We will be back very soon. Thank you so much for listening, watching, subscribing, liking, doing all that stuff. Let us know what you think. Hit us up in the comments. Tell us if you want to hear from, you know, if, if you want us to try and hook us up with someone else and talk to someone else. Let us know if you want us to re you know, review a show. We'll do whatever you guys want. We're just, we're just two J bros doing our thing. Do you think maybe the reason why I'm warming up to Meltzer is because of the neck beard, bro? Is that? Oh, you see, it's that... a bit, it is a bit necky. It's getting a bit necky, isn't it, bro? Like, fuck, I didn't <laughs> even notice. <laughs> I don't look in mirrors. I don't bother. <laughs> so on that note. Yeah. We thank Brian again. Thank you to the best co-host in all wrestling podcast, my man JB. Oh, and, and don't, don't forget the best Chris in all of you know wrestling podcasts. And I'm going to give him a new nickname as well, Dynamite Chris Dread. Dynamite Chris Dread, fucking a man, <laughs> flying headbutts off the top turnbuckle. <laughs> Let's no, fucking thank you go. very much, guys. Take care, everyone. We will see you soon.